Destination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. the last week of what is called dry January, with millions finishing up a month of abstaining from alcohol-based adult beverages. I've been impressed by how the movement is fast becoming a first-of-the-year tradition. More and more Americans have taken the dry January pledge since it was introduced some 17 years ago as a public health program in the U.K., Across the pond, 4,000 signed up that first year, with millions of Brits accepting the challenge during the last couple of years. Last January, an estimated one in five Americans took part, and organizers predict the final tally for this month will be even bigger. I first heard about Dry January a couple of years ago, intrigued by the building enthusiasm, particularly among millennial young professionals who've been writing and posting about their experiences. A lot of them said the timing helped persuade them to pledge, coming right after the end of the year, often crammed with alcohol-heavy events and the pressure to overindulge because, come on, it's the holidays. 
social drinking is deeply embedded in American culture. Not only are signature cocktails the mark of a trendy restaurant, but we celebrate alcohol overindulgence in pop culture. The spin-off series Grownish regularly features fictional college students drinking or at an alcohol-fueled party, and those three wildly successful hangover movies are actually comedic takes on alcohol blackouts. Health experts typically recommend that one drink per day for otherwise healthy adults is okay, but I could see how easily I could imbibe much more. In any given week, I'm meeting friends at a bar for after-work catch-ups, attending a couple of dinner meetings and other events preceded by wine and cheese, and possibly grabbing brunch with my book club on the weekend. Or I could just as easily end each weekday with more than a single glass of wine. I don't do that, but many do. So I understand why for them, Dry January offers a communal way to regain control of their alcohol consumption, even if only for a month. Dry January is being embraced by former social drinkers who've elected to cut back on their drinking, what's called sober curious. They tout a lifestyle where drinking is not equated to a good time. Supporting this trend, alcohol-free bars and events where fancy sparkling water is a fine substitute for alcoholic drinks. Bartenders compete by crafting attention-getting no-alcohol drinks using exotic syrups and fresh herbs. In Bourbon-branded Kentucky, Jesse Hawkins created the Mocktail Project, telling the Courier-Journal that Dry January is an opportunity to retool your social habits. British charity Alcohol Concern created Dry January and runs it as a program for improving overall health. And most one-month abstainers report better sleep, weight loss, and improved concentration. Dry January is not aimed at those with serious alcohol problems. And in fact, doctors say abrupt alcohol withdrawal for alcoholics could be harmful. I have relatives who've succumbed to the disease of alcoholism. I know the misery it imposes on the out-of-control drinker and the heartbreak suffered by loved ones who are helpless witnesses. But if a voluntary booze break can be a tool to prompt others to rethink the social role of alcohol in their lives, so much the better. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR. Australia. The fire this time. Tongues of fire lick the trees of New South Wales, a state in southeast Australia, like a beggar at a feast. Red flowers of flame jump across the nation, eating all in its path, a living expression of what Aussies call fire season. Honestly, fire season. This the time of Australian summer is the hottest summer since records were kept and fire season gives a whole new meaning to the passive term global warming. How about global burning? In this fire season alone over a billion animals, that's billion with a B. Again, a billion animals have lost their lives. This alone seems almost incomprehensible. A billion life forms gone in a temporal blink of time. 
Is this not a sign, a symbol of things to come? Fire season, the season of fire. Why not call it what it really is? Death season, the season of death. When so-called civilized society causes an animal holocaust against life itself, Australia is burning. From imprisoned nations, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. The World Health Organization has declared that the coronavirus outbreak is now a global health emergency. The illness which has killed 170 people in China has now spread to 18 other countries. The head of the WHO, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, explained the reasoning behind the move. The main reason for this declaration is not because of what is happening in China, but because of what is happening in other countries. Our greatest concern is the potential for the virus to spread to countries with weaker health systems and which are ill-prepared to deal with it. Mr. Adhanom Ghebreyesus congratulated Beijing on what he called the extraordinary measures it had taken so far. The Chinese government is to be congratulated for the extraordinary measures it has taken to contain the outbreak. Despite the severe social and economic impact those measures are having on the Chinese people. We would have seen many more cases outside China by now, and probably does, if it were not for the government's efforts and the progress they have made to protect their own people and the people of the world. Tim Franks spoke to Jeremy Kanindike, a senior policy fellow at the Centre for Global Development. He's also a member of an independent body which oversees the WHO's health emergencies programme. Well, I think at this point it's clearly the right call. When they last looked at this issue just last week, the numbers were much lower and the information at the time looked much more ambiguous. And it was debatable at that time, but it was a close call. I don't think it's a close call any longer, and I think they made the right decision. Despite the fact that it's only 1% of cases that are outside China's borders? Yes, because we've seen within China's borders that the potential for human-to-human spread is very, very high indeed. And I think that wasn't so clear a week ago, you know, just a week, uh, week to 10 days ago, there was still a lot of speculation that this might be mainly about animal to human transmission. I think now it's very clear that it's, it's quite transmissible uh, amongst, amongst humans. And that really changes the calculus in terms of the global risk. And, and uh, you know, as, as Dr. Tedros, I think, rightly said, the risks, especially to underdeveloped countries with weak health systems, could be quite significant. So it's time to start readying now. And, and in terms of the difference that it will make, around the world. What, what can you point to? I mean, he did, yes, absolutely talk about trying to support those countries, particularly with weaker health systems. But this, this declaration, what does it substantively change? Well, it does a, it does a few things. Uh, you know, first, and I think very importantly, it's, uh, it's got a very important signaling effect. You know, this is a, a wake-up call to the world that this is now not just a China problem or a regional problem, it's a global problem. Uh, and by definition, when, when this declaration is made, that's the implication. And so it's a signal to countries around the world that they need to begin gearing up. It's also a signal to 
countries like the U.S., like the U.K., uh, you know, wealthier, uh, wealthier countries that have that support global health efforts to begin investing in and supporting preparedness in countries that are vulnerable. So that signaling effect, that wake-up call that it provides, is one very important thing. But then also it. It opens up some uh, expanded and enhanced authorities for WHO. So it it will require enhanced reporting cases and case information to WHO. It will also authorize WHO to provide non-binding but highly influential guidance to countries around the world about how they can protect themselves and what they should but also what they should not do. And I thought Dr. Tedros's comments today – recommending against travel and trade bans were particularly important on yeah, that, that, that respect. It, it was very striking, that. And I just wonder whether he, you got the sense from him, I mean, clearly he was being very diplomatic, but whether he, he felt that perhaps th- there's been too much caution in terms of airlines, for example, saying we're no longer going to fly. This sort of disease, a disease that can spread through airborne transmission, is extremely difficult to fully contain when it's gotten to the scale it's gotten to in China. And so I think you know, really we need to begin envisioning this as a shift from containment to perhaps one more of mitigation. With travel and trade restrictions, the sort that are being discussed now, often the second-order impacts of those can be more damaging than the level of protection they actually provide against the virus. And, and the consensus in the public health community is generally those sorts of measures at best delay but do not really contain the spread of the disease. Jeremy Kaneindak, a senior policy fellow at the Centre for Global Development. Come here, Susie. You remember me? Your daddy's friend, Henry? I, I, no, don't! A lawyer who represents some of Jeffrey Epstein's alleged sexual abuse victims has criticized Prince Andrew after he was accused by a prosecutor in New York of offering zero cooperation to the inquiry into the billionaire sex offender who took his own life last year. The Queen's son has denied having sexual relations with a woman who claims she was introduced to him after being trafficked to London by Epstein. But the lawyer, Gloria Allred, told the BBC she'd subpoena him if he visited the U.S. and urged him to meet the American investigators. These victims have been suffering for years. So I I always said about Prince Andrew, you know, not words but deeds. Go ahead and speak to law enforcement. And now what's he going to do? Not respond to the press about it? Just try to avoid and evade? This is not going to be acceptable. Buckingham Palace has declined to comment on the claims that Prince Andrew isn't cooperating. From outside the palace, Andy Moore reports. Nothing from his legal team uh, some 14 hours after this statement was first made uh, in the States. So we don't know if there's been some sort of misunderstanding, if Prince Andrew will make a statement at some stage or whether, as the American prosecutor suggests, it's a flat no, we can't help. Uh, I suppose you could say that so far from uh, Prince Andrew's legal team in UK so far, there's been zero cooperation uh, with the British media. It was interesting that that statement was made outside Jeffrey Epstein's manor, that big, distinctive wooden door, that same door uh, you saw in my report there, Prince Andrew peeking out of as he said goodbye to an unidentified woman. Uh, That was back in 2010 when Prince Andrew went to New York. He said he went there. It was a matter of honour to tell his old friend that he could have uh, no longer a relationship with him. 
Uh, the American prosecutor said uh, the criminal investigation there was moving at pace. That, those were his words. And he said it also involved co-conspirators, uh, though he didn't uh, identify any of them. Andy Moore. The Breakthrough. Politics and Race in the Age of Obama. By Gwen Eiffel. Some people leave a mark long after they are gone. Gwen Eiffel is one of them. And as of today, her smile can stick to any message you write. I was grateful to be there this morning when my friend, the NewsHour's former co-anchor, was honored with a special postage stamp. The moment was celebrated at her spiritual home. It was an event that drew stamp collectors. I belong to a stamp club, a black stamp club that collects uh, Afro-American stamps. Because of the uh, honor that she's receiving today, I wanted to come. And Gwen Eiffel fans from far and wide. The stamp is something that you put on the note to send to your friend. People all over this country are going to be doing that. And they're going to know why I chose the Gwen stamp. Because she was thoughtful, she was kind, and she was dedicated to the American public. The U.S. Postal Service officially unveiled the Gwen Eiffel Black Heritage Forever stamp at a dedication ceremony at the Metropolitan AME Church in Washington, D.C. Gwen's brother, Bird, accepted the honor on behalf of the Eiffel family and recited a poem he wrote. It is titled, Gwen Forever. Gwen's smile, her confident smile, compassionate, consoling, cognizant, beams out at us. Posterity has given its stamp of approval. When we have something to say is too difficult or complicated to express in a text or over the phone, she will be with us. Our memories, now direct and sharp, will fade over time, just as our lives will. But Gwen's image, image, legacy, spirit will endure. Gwen's stamp puts her in the pantheon of other black trailblazers honored with a stamp, including Rosa Parks, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Ida B. Wells, and Jackie Robinson. Former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder was a good friend. Today, more than ever, and in this city at this time and on this day, the need for her is painfully acute. This is a time for journalists to be brave, demanding, unyielding, persistent, and committed to sharing truth with the nation. Gwen's career in journalism began in newspapers, the Baltimore Sun, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. Even marginal progress. She moved to television in 1994 with a stint at NBC News. They have to find a way to work with this president for the next two years. Then it was on to PBS in 1999, moderating Washington Week in Review. Gwen Eiffel. Becoming one of the first black women to host a national political program. And to our new senior correspondent, Gwen Eiffel. Welcome, Gwen. Here at the NewsHour for 17 years, her work took her around the country. This weekend, the political yin and yang of a crowded field all descended in Iowa at once. Reporting on politics, sitting down with singing legends. How do you handle the weight of the divaness of this all? 
You have a well, lot of flair. I love to sing. Moderating vice presidential debates. I want to talk to you about AIDS, and not about AIDS in China or Africa, but AIDS right here in this country. And, and interviewing heads of state. The notion that somehow uh, America is in decline is just not borne out by the facts. But it uh, resonates. It resonates among well, a lot of aggrieved people who are voting in big numbers for Donald Trump. In 2016, at the age of 61, Gwen died of cancer, leaving her colleagues and fans devastated. As she rose higher in her career, Gwen mentored many aspiring young journalists, especially women of color. Her pastor, the Reverend William H. Lamar IV, said Gwen believed her connections to African-American communities was essential. Gwen did not seek, nor did she accept the tantalizing offer to graduate from her blackness. Gwen found gifted black women and opened doors for them that she had to kick down. During today's ceremony, Gwen's work and values also were recognized by two former presidents, Obama and Clinton. Longtime journalist Michelle Norris was one of her closest friends. It is fitting that Gwen's image is on a stamp, and that stamps are the way that we communicate and remain connected with each other. Because Gwen was one of those people that Malcolm Gladwell might call a connector. She loved bringing people together. Her cousin, Sherilyn Eiffel, president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, and many others treated the day as a celebration. Nothing has done more to heal the pain of losing her than those three simple words, Gwen Eiffel forever. And at this moment in our country, those words mean so much. For our family, Gwen Eiffel forever means that our parents and our grandparents' struggles were not in vain. They live on in each of us forever. The Gwen Eiffel Black Heritage Stamp went on sale at U.S. post offices nationwide today. It was a beautiful ceremony today. I was so honored to be there. Gwen lives on inside each one of us at the News Hour every day. And online, you can find a link to watch the whole ceremony for Gwen. That is on our website, pbs.org slash newshour. The next chapter explores how black bodies were medically exploited even after death via autopsy and dissection. Chapter 5. The Restless Dead. Anatomical Dissection and Display In Baltimore, the bodies of colored people exclusively are taken for dissection because the whites do not like it and colored people cannot resist. Harriet Martineau, Retrospect of Western Travel No place in the United States offers as great opportunities for the acquisition of anatomical knowledge, subjects being obtained from among the colored population in sufficient numbers for every purpose and proper dissection carried on without offending any individuals in our community. Advertisement for the South Carolina Medical College, C. 1831. Eleven years ago, a man named Kevin Bailey bought the Washington Park Cemetery. It sits in the North St. Louis County suburb of Berkeley. It's a black cemetery with a long history and some prominent residents. Bailey was its first black owner. 
But maintenance problems overwhelm the site, and Bailey has now given up. The city of Berkeley is stepping in to buy the cemetery from him. St. Louis County Director of Revenue Quentin Wilson explained what Berkeley hopes to achieve with purchasing the long-neglected cemetery. Berkeley's intention, and they've passed an ordinance to accomplish this, is to create this as a park, uh, working with the families and others to uh, enable folks to come in and and, uh, and visit the family sites that, that have been uh, just kind of shameful embarrassment for so long. It's been in private hands, it, 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 so the city of Berkeley is offering to come in and and invest in the process of restoring it. But I think you have the family members and uh, volunteers from around the county that have been working to uh, maintain the site through landscaping or maintenance, a minimal amount of maintenance as much as they can do. But it really does take more of a community effort, and and I think that's what we're hoping Berkeley and others interested in this amazing site can accomplish. And that was St. Louis County Director of Revenue, Quentin Wilson. The cost of Berkeley purchasing the Washington Park Cemetery, it's going to be just about $30 or so. That's the cost of some administrative fees for the sale. So joining us today to talk about what's going on with this cemetery and ultimately the state of black cemeteries across the region is Chris Nafsinger. He's an art historian, the author of the blog St. Louis Patina, and a regular contributor to St. Louis Magazine. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me a bit about the Washington Park Cemetery. When did it open and, and who was it serving at that point? So it's actually celebrating its 100th anniversary. It actually opened in 1920 and it was basically created to serve African Americans because of segregation. Uh, most of the cemeteries in St. Louis County and St. Louis City actually were, were closed to African Americans. Uh, there were restrictive covenants. So uh, two men, Andrew Watson and uh, Joseph Hoyer, basically bought 75 acres out, which is uh, close to what is now uh, Lambert International Airport. But at the time, it was way out in the middle of the country. Hmm. Um, There was a little bit of uh, what was called Kinlock Field. Um, But for the most part, they had chosen a site and they purchased the the property without telling uh, the seller what they were going to do with it. And uh, it's the 100th anniversary of the founding of Washington Park. I also say it's the 100th anniversary of the persecution of Washington Park Cemetery. Almost from the beginning, white landowners around the property basically made up, trumped up claims of uh, African-Americans causing trouble. Um, They said there was frolicking going on. It was the words that newspaper articles use or hilarious celebrations, whatever that meant back in 1923. Um, There was always kind of this effort to always kind of cause trouble for Washington Park Cemetery. There was always this effort to make them feel unwanted. Maybe people just didn't want to have black neighbors, even if those neighbors were deceased. I mean, this was the level of of racism there? Exactly. And there was even this one preposterous claim that um, they shouldn't have cemeteries along major roads, which is ridiculous, of course, because as we know, there's actually probably close to a dozen major cemeteries that were originally founded for white St. Louisans along major roads, St. Charles Rock Road, for example, or along Gravoy. So it was just they were just always just making up excuses for why they didn't want it out there. Um, but it was made, uh, it was opened, and uh, for 90,000 graves. And for $50, you could buy a three-grave lot. And uh, basically, it became the premier place for African Americans to be buried. And despite all the racism and all the prejudice, um, it thrived, and it was a privately owned cemetery, and that would prove in the future to, to be some of the problems. 
The first major challenge then was in 1955, and that is when Interstate 70 cut right through the middle of the cemetery. And I was looking at old aerial maps, and I was looking at topographical maps. For the life of me, I cannot figure out why the highway engineers chose to go right through the middle of the cemetery. Hmm. It seems like it would have been easier to go through the, to the south along the natural bridge corridor. It makes me really suspicious. I don't understand why, if you look at maps, why Interstate 70 kind of just all of a sudden goes to the north and goes right through the middle of the cemetery. You think they maybe wanted to disrupt this cemetery that the neighbors had, had opposed? I feel like they probably chose to go through the African-American cemetery mm. as opposed to go south through what was probably white-owned property. And that meant um, a great displacement. I mean, that they didn't just plow over these graves. These graves had to be moved. That was the first displacement. And most importantly, it left over a dozen acres north of the primary cemetery along Natural Bridge. It made those acres less desirable. Mm -hmm. It was basically closer to the airport now. They had a tunnel underneath the culvert or underneath the interstate, but it just wasn't very valuable real estate anymore. And then in 1972, there was another buyout. And that was when nine acres were purchased by the city of St. Louis because it owns the airport. And that was with uh, Mayor Cervantes. And there was even kind of a nice little bit of controversy. They purchased it for $350,000 over the asking price. And they only had one appraisal, which, again, sounds familiar. And what ends up happening is that the FAA actually doesn't reimburse the city of St. Louis because they did there was there were shady dealings basically. Hmm. So that brings us up then to 1990, and that is the first time I find a newspaper article for families coming out and doing their own cleanup for the cemetery. Now it's 30 years later, and people, volunteers are still coming out to help clean up the cemetery. And the owner is a woman named Virginia Younger. And to make a long story short, I looked at old court records, and she was in severe financial trouble. She was being sued one year after another. From the early 80s up until her suicide in 1991, she was being sued by creditors basically every year. Hmm. And um, in her suicide note, she basically said that she was basically felt like she was being persecuted. But what we can see from old newspaper articles is that basically families were wondering where were their loved ones being buried. There's very strong evidence and pretty much solid proof that she was not burying people. She was possibly even selling off people's co uh, coffins for scrap. Oh, my goodness. Um, there was a lot of very illegal activity going on up there. And so, of course, when she commits suicide, the property goes, you know, basically intestate. And when it comes out of it, a couple of men uh, – Two lawyers, Ron Cooper and uh, Charles uh, Clardy, they buy it for $3,500. And it actually takes uh, around five years till 1995 for them to finally get through all of the legal issues to take uh, title to it. And by that time, it's down to 46 acres. So I think it's what's very important for people to realize when the city bought that property north of the interstate, that took away a lot of valuable property that could have been income generating, you know, property. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's very important to realize is the debacle of what happened when Metrolink went through. 
it's actually one of the largest mass removal graves in American history. Anywhere from 11,000 to 13,000 graves were removed. And it wasn't just simply for Metrolink. It was also for the FAA. They claimed that a hill in the cemetery was too high, about over 20 feet too high, so it, it interfered with planes landing at Lambert. There were all sorts of accusations um, that one of the archaeologists who helped uh, with the removal of the bodies kept some of the bones at his office, and it, took, it actually came to him actually hiring a lawyer, and uh, he actually was basically made to – he was disgraced uh, in the whole episode. Basically, those two lawyers, they tried their best. Um, the last thing I could really find out by about one of those lawyers, uh, the, Ron Cooper, is he was uh, – in 2007, he was having very severe health problems. And that sort of kind of brings us up to the present day um, with Kevin Bailey. Uh, he, from what I understand, he bought the cemetery for $2. Mm -hmm. um, there's all sorts of uh, volunteers who've really been helping out with maintaining the property. Um, I actually just visited the cemetery this morning to kind of see – um, the most up-to-date conditions. Um, I, I met two uh, City of Berkeley employees um, who told me they'd been mowing the grass. I actually feel like it's looking pretty good overall. I'm actually was pretty impressed. And so even though this the sale isn't final, Berkeley is on site um, yeah. doing some maintenance. Yeah, and I actually was pretty impressed. Um, one thing that um, there's a lot more work to do, particularly the roads are in bad condition. Um, they're going to have to bring those up to safe conditions. Also, uh, Virginia Younger allowed a volunteer forest to grow out there, and that's going to take a lot of work to cut that forest down. It's what was originally people's graves. It was not a forest that was there originally. It's been allowed to grow up, and they're going to need to cut that down as well. Okay. So we're talking to Chris Nafsinger. He's an art historian, the author of the blog St. Louis Patina, and we're talking about the Washington Park Cemetery in Berkeley, which the city of Berkeley is in the process of closing on, um, which could lead to some really good changes for a property that, as Chris was just explaining, has a, a very tough history. And we're also joined by two other guests today who know all about the difficulties of maintaining a cemetery. They're both volunteers who've done some work with other black cemeteries in town. And one of them is Kathy Hart. She's a board member of the Friends of Father Dixon Cemetery. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And we're joined by Etta Daniels. She's a historian and archivist for the Greenwood Cemetery. Etta, welcome. Thank you. Kathy, I want to start with you. I know you have a number of family members who are at the Friends of Father Dixon Cemetery. When did you first visit that site? I went back to the cemetery for the first time in decades uh, in the mid to late 80s. My great-great-grandmother is buried there. My paternal great-grandparents are also buried there. And I just wanted to visit the gravesite. So that was in the mid to late 80s. And how did it look at that point? Pathetic. It was really neglected, overrun, um, used for trash and and des some of the uh, grave sites were desecrated. So it was heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking. And, of course, my reaction was somebody ought to do something about this. And usually when you say that, you have to be careful what you pray for because that somebody ends up being you. And, <laughs> and that was the case. There was a... Um, a meeting of the Friends of Father Dixon's people who were getting together to address the needs of the cemetery because it had been rumored that there were plans to um, displace the those people interred there for 
commercial development. Somebody wanted that site. Right, right. And where is this uh, site? It's in Crestwood. It's along Sappington Road. So that's between... sort of a fast-growing area exactly, right there. Exactly. And, uh, it, of course, like Washington Park, it was in the country at one point, but uh, things had grown up around there, so it was very, very desirable property. And uh, there was a reaction. Of course, people did not want that to happen. So that's how the Friends of Father Dixon's came into existence. Okay. And so you ended up being one of the leaders in yeah, that initiative. Yeah. When I found out about the meeting, I told my mom, and true to form, she got everybody in the family involved. And so when that meeting happened, we were all there. And 32 years later, I'm still working with the organization. Wow. You, so you really took this on. Edda, I'm curious about you and your experience at Greenwood Cemetery. How did you first end up um, getting involved with that effort? About the same as Kathy. After uh, college, I moved away from St. Louis and lived in the Boston area for over 25 years. Upon coming home, I decided I'd visit my great-grandmother's grave and uh, couldn't even find it. It was so overgrown at Greenwood. So uh, I decided... The only thing to do was to get involved. I got my family involved, other people involved. We eventually created a board and um, went to work. And so your great-grandmother's grave, um, you say things were overgrown and and this was not something that was readily apparent. Were Mm -hmm. you able to find it? Oh, yes, yes, uh, definitely. And clear it, and that area has been totally cleared now. Now, Greenwood has an interesting uh, history compared to the other two because Greenwood is actually the very first commercial African-American cemetery in the St. Louis region. And how long does that go back then? It goes back to 1874. Wow. 1874. So between 1874 and 1993, Greenwood was an active burial ground and over 50,000 African-Americans have been were interred there. Oh, my goodness. And so you were going way back. Uh, yes. And where is this located? This is in uh, the city of Hillsdale. It's just a little east of St. Peter's Cemetery. As a matter of fact, uh, Greenwood's origins really does come out of St. Peter's Cemetery. The original founder was a former sexton of St. Peter's Cemetery. Okay. And so, Chris, I know you, you've studied these issues a lot. Um, what Ed is saying here, this is the oldest commercial one in the area. Before that, um, were black residents just buried on private plots or what do we know about where they would have gone? Well, there was also an earlier cemetery. It was the Wesleyan Cemetery. Um, there also is a, a cemetery way out in Wildwood um, that was actually on the property of a plantation. Oh, um, wow. You can actually go out Wild Horse Creek Road, and there's a road called Old Slave Road, and there's actually a, a slave cemetery out there. So uh, basically, you know, they found places here and there. Wesleyan Cemetery actually um, was dug up as well. Um, and some of those bones uh, from the people who were interred there were actually dumped in a mass grave at Washington Park Cemetery. It's my understanding, too, that public cemeteries were segregated, but church cemeteries were were allowed allowing a Oh, okay. But church cemeteries were allowing integrated burials. Okay. So if you were in a church cemetery, that might have been a different story. Right. Interesting. Right. New York. New York. New York. In New York, backlash is building against a new state law that severely limits what is known as cash bail. The law is meant to fix a basic injustice, the fact that poor people accused of crimes often have to wait in jail for their cases to be heard because they can't afford bail. The law took effect on the first of this year, but as NPR's Martin Costi reports, some people already want to change it. In a way, this was a backlash foretold. 
Even before the law ever took effect, there had been calls to change it. The reform is good, and it can be much better with small tweaks to it. That's New York Police Commissioner Dermot Shea in December. He seemed to accept the law's general goal, fewer nonviolent defendants stuck in jail waiting for trial. But he predicted that there would be some cases where setting bail might still look like the better option. Think of a robbery. We're going to have situations where individuals, and we have the data to back it up, go out and do repeated robberies, caught, released, caught, released. Sure enough, soon after the new year, the New York media were finding those examples. The latest case, a serial bank robber who was released, and police say wasted no time before robbing again. That robber was unarmed, so this was a nonviolent crime, which meant release without bail. Upstate in Ulster County, District Attorney Dave Clegg generally supports the new law, but he says he's also seen at least one case where the elimination of bail has meant the release of somebody he didn't think should be out. Someone charged with committing a burglary second, someone who had made threats against the occupants of the premises, and it appears that he has not complied with the instructions from probation, but we're not sure if this person is run away or or what. Clegg and other prosecutors would like to see the legislature amend the bail law to allow judges to keep some defendants in jail when they appear to pose a threat. It's a concept that's also supported by activists for victims of domestic abuse. But bail reform groups do not want to see the law changed. We will not accept rollbacks. Leave our bail reform intact. They rallied at the Capitol in Albany. Deanna Hoskins, head of Just Leadership USA, portrayed the law as a major civil rights achievement, one which should be left intact. It took decades for policymakers to build mass punishment systems that have killed our communities. And now, just after a couple of weeks of the thought of us being free... We got people who said that's a little bit too much. What complicates this debate is the shifting understanding of what bail is even for. It started out as collateral, money you leave with the court to ensure that you'll show up for trial. But as research has shown that most defendants show up anyway, the conversation has shifted. Now it's about whether bail is really for keeping dangerous defendants off the streets. Laura Appleman is a law professor at Willamette University who's followed this issue for years. She was amazed by how much New York restricted bail... But she says risk assessment was bound to come up. That's sort of the fulcrum in which we, I think, currently are dividing how we deal with reforming criminal justice, that we can do it for people who don't find, quote unquote, dangerous. This question also tripped up the anti-bail movement in California in 2018, where activists turned against a similar law because it replaced bail with a system of judicial risk assessment. In New York, public defender Marie Njai says that's her position, too. She's opposed on principle to any new system for keeping people behind bars while they're still waiting for their day in court. I think there's no right way to do it. I think there are a bunch of wrong ways to do it, but I do not think that there is a right way to detain people pre-trial because you just don't know. We don't have a crystal ball. She says just a few weeks in, it's way too early for anyone to claim that eliminating bail has led to more crime in New York. But she calls the current backlash, quote, unsurprising. Martin Costi, NPR News. Synchronized swimming, water polo, hockey. I don't know about hockey. The National Hockey League was the last major U.S. sports league to integrate. Now, more than 60 years later, the league is trying to create more interest in hockey among minorities while continuing to respond to racial incidents. St. Louis Public Radio's Ryan Delaney reports. 
The NHL's color barrier was broken when Willie O'Ree played for the Boston Bruins in 1958, but it remains the whitest of the major sports leagues. Just 92 other black hockey players have followed O'Ree and skated in the NHL. This season, just over 2% of the league's 800 or so players are black. That compares to about 70% of pro football players and a 40% diversity mark in Major League Baseball. Black players in hockey say racial taunts by fans are still a part of the game. In 2018, Washington Washington's Devontae Smith-Pelly was called the N-word by fans while sitting in the penalty box in Chicago. But former player Jamal Mayers says it's getting easier to speak out about racism. I think that I tolerated a lot of things, to be quite honest, that I think that I just assume that's the way it is, but I don't believe that's the way it has to be. Mayers was in St. Louis, where he started his career for the All-Star Game this past weekend. The league parked its Black Hockey History Mobile Museum outside a Boys and Girls Club in the majority black suburbs north of the city. The outside of the shiny tractor trailer is painted with images of several black players. On the inside, visitors can view the jersey O'Ree wore in his first game and try to answer some trivia. Can you tell me who the first black captain in the NHL was? Good one. Okay. The NHL screened a documentary about O'Ree in the community center here and held a diversity in hockey panel discussion that included league commissioner Gary Bettman. Last fall, former NHL forward Akima Lou, who was born in Nigeria, shared stories of enduring racial epithets and images of blackface while in the minor leagues. In response, Bettman announced mandatory diversity training for the league and set up a whistleblower hotline. More important than punishment is education and training and counseling so that people understand what's right and what's wrong. The NHL is driving its mobile history museum to NHL cities in an effort to put a spotlight on its black players. The next day, the museum was parked next to a small outdoor ice rink in downtown St. Louis for the All-Star Game festivities. This stick here is a really, really cool artifact. Inside the narrow trailer, lined with photos and memorabilia, co-curator Kwame Mason gave a tour to some past and present pro players a few hours before the game. They had a chance to autograph their pictures on a wall representing every black player in the league. The museum tells the history of what was then known as the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes that formed in 1895 in Nova Scotia and highlights the contributions by those black players, things like the slap shot and butterfly goalie stance. On the tour today is Anthony Duclair, one of two black players to make the all-star team. Uh, even for myself, uh, you know, I didn't really know a bunch of these guys until today, so it, it, we're all learning uh, together. Mason, who made his own film about the history of black hockey players, says affordability and access to ice is only one challenge in making the game more inclusive. The biggest issue for me is the interaction, the invitation, the comfortability of bringing in minorities and making them feel comfortable in the hockey space. After the museum opened to the public, eight-year-old Karan Jones wandered in with his grandparents. Oh, boy, look like you. <laughs> Karan prefers football over hockey. He's tried ice skating before, but says it's hard. But he read almost every word of the history exhibit as his family inched through the crowd to the other end. I learned that Famous black hockey players helped others and worked as a team. His grandparents then rented him a pair of skates at the outdoor rink so he could give skating another try. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Delaney in St. Louis. Now I want to say congrats to the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers for advancing to Super Bowl 54. When the Kansas City Chiefs play the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl on Sunday, it'll be the Chiefs' first time at the Super Bowl in 50 years. 
Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports on the excitement and the complications. Cavernous, majestic old train station in Kansas City is festooned with chief signs and banners, and it is packed with exuberant fans dressed in red and black, trading phones and taking pictures of each other's families. Ready? One, two, three, smile. You have people turning over their $700 phone to somebody, some stranger. Pose like this. I'll do that for you. Yeah. We're all just excited. Gina Williams is here with her mom both sporting wide KC headbands that make their hair poof up a little bit like Kansas City star quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Like nobody cares about like all the division in the world today right now. We're all just excited about our team. It was 1970, the last time Kansas City's team went to the Super Bowl. That name, by the way, was made up by the father of the team's current CEO. Now the city's best-known buildings glow red at night. Red clothes are flying off store shelves. And Chiefs, cakes, cookies, earrings, even breakfast cereal is suddenly a thing, much to the delight of fans like Tom Shipper. Brought everybody together. The town was together. Black, white, red, yellow. We were all one. So and we're going to carry that on to Miami. But the Chiefs are also carrying baggage. At a recent game at Arrowhead Stadium, a sea of fans dressed in red chant a fake Native American song and do the tomahawk chop. When you see this on TV or in person, this distortion and kind of dehumanizing imagery has lasting negative impacts for us. Kevin Alice heads the National Congress of American Indians. He says that Native American imagery used by the Chiefs and several other pro teams conjures up a mythical people and dismisses modern Native Americans. Now, the Chiefs do not have a Native American mascot, and for years the teams worked with Native groups to try to educate fans. However, the team does abide the chop, and though it claims to discourage dressing up in war paint and feathered headdresses, some fans persist. There's a very visceral feeling of disgust when I see someone painted in red face or see someone who has like faux warrior outfit on, but it's just such a cartoon. Dan and Hare is a Kansas City transplant who grew up in Oklahoma, immersed in the Pawnee Nation. And he's torn about celebrating the Chiefs. Because I have a family that has a deep, deep connection to our culture. And I have a son who's really, really passionate about football and specifically the Chiefs right now in the Super Bowl. His son is nine. And Hare says he's trying to make sure he recognizes the bright line between offensive imagery and actual Native culture. I've asked him not to do the tomahawk chop in the house. Uh, That's one thing. Hare wishes the Kansas City Chiefs and some of the fans would work harder to respect his culture. But on Sunday, he'll also be watching the game. I enjoy the team. I enjoy the players. They're just playing football. I have nothing against them. And so Hare and his family will join a galvanizing moment for Kansas City as the Chiefs return to the Super Bowl for the first time in the lives of most fans, many of whom will be all decked out in the primary team color, a color you can't escape here this week. As one local poet observes, roses are red, violets are red, everything's red. Go Chiefs. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. To pull the trigger on the sideline, just in front of us. 
Battling for position down inside. Nene is fronting Shaquille O'Neal. Kobe pops out. Kobe's going to go. Couple of left-handed dribbles. Has a look at it. The Lakers win! As always, any shot at the end of the game or the end of quarters, they have to review. But Kobe Bryant loves buzzer beaters. He loves that scenario. They get the ball into his hands, and I mean, he knocks down a beautiful jump shot. The crowd on their feet, teammates out to greet him, and now the officials over on the sideline trying to figure out, is it good? Is it out of his hands before triple zeros? I'll say it's out of his hands before triple zeros. Count the basket. Give the Lakers a two-point victory. A long, very trying day for one Kobe Bryant. Just ended as sweetly as it possibly could. Why is it taking him so long? <laughs> I mean, I know you look at different angles when you're the officials, but come on. It counts, guys. <laughs> Just all they got to do is look up here, yeah, Stu. I, I gave him the signal already. What a way to end Kobe's day. Nice job to end Kobe's day. The day has officially come to an end, and as they say... The L.A. Lakers were supposed to play the L.A. Clippers tonight, but the game was postponed to allow people to grieve for Kobe Bryant. He died on Sunday in a helicopter crash that stunned Los Angeles and millions of his fans. Bryant was remarkable for many reasons, including how young he was when he went pro, straight out of high school at 18. He earned five NBA championship rings and two Olympic gold medals. But even as the arc of his basketball career seemed almost preordained, his personal journey was anything but. Here's what sports columnist Christine Brennan of USA Today and Kevin Blackstone of The Washington Post told me. He was a complicated individual because we saw many different facets of Kobe Bryant through his entire adult career. He arrives in the NBA, 17, 18-year-old kid, who a lot of people thought um, acted as if he already belonged, somewhat entitled because of his talent and because of his being the son of a um, former NBA player. And slowly he evolved into uh, maybe a spoiled star. Uh, yeah, because at some point we begin to see him in spats with veteran players. And then he evolves into a controversial figure uh, when he is charged with rape. And that changed what a lot of people thought about him and created, I think, another level of enmity among some fans. Well, Kevin, no, I, I certainly agree with you there. You know, it, it's really hard, and I think we all agree. You know, he, he's gone, and what a tragedy this is. And the loss of life, not just Kobe, his daughter, but her teammates and the others, it's just horrible. And yet, uh, as journalists, I think it's important, I know you would agree, that we should mention, as part of his story, the 2003 uh, allegations of sexual assault. Absolutely. And, and uh, and this was a very serious issue. It's it's an it, important point in his life and how he then moved on to have four daughters and to uh, be, really become a feminist in terms of his daughters and what they could do. But 
I do think it's important also that he did have that statement at the end of this very long, drawn-out process where the charges were dropped and there was no trial, but he said he thought that the encounter was consensual. He right. recognized now, he said, that she, meaning the uh, the woman, did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. Looking at it in 2003, 2004, it's one thing. Looking at it through the prism of right now, wow, that's a very significant thing. And I don't think any of us, we don't want to back away from that. Um, that is certainly part of Kobe's history, and I think it's it's wise to discuss it. But we look back to that time and think about the life he's lived. And here he is, I mean, the very quintessentially 21st century slice of Americana, a dad taking his daughter to a sporting event. Yeah. Kevin, you do that with your daughter. And here, in this case, it's in a helicopter, and there's other girls, and they're going to go play a game, her game, Sorry. and he's coaching. Yeah, and I was with my daughter at a women's college basketball game, and it was after that that I heard this news, and it came out in two pieces, one that uh, Kobe Bryant had perished, and then maybe an hour later that his daughter had perished with him. And um, that really struck home with me, because in one sense, we saw the full bloom of the Kobe Bryant we came to know. And that's the basketball player, the artistry on the floor. And now he's into a second chapter of his life. But his daughter at 13, we did not see a full chapter. We barely saw a beginning. And that's what really struck me. And I'm thinking about the relationship that Kobe had with his, with his daughter and the support that he was showing for the, for the WNBA that's evolution from where he once was. Well, this is, I mean, to your point, I wonder, is this how a complicated person becomes beloved? How did this man manage to evoke so much in so many people? You know, it may have been because he was in the game for so long and he became, as I've heard a number of players say in the, in the past uh, uh, 24, um, 36 hours, he became their Michael Jordan. Hmm. They didn't grow up with, with Michael Jordan. They grew up with Kobe Bryant. And as such, he became this avuncular figure to them. And, and by all accounts, he was very gracious with um, information about the game that he played so spectacularly well. Such a well. change. Such a change from that arrogant young man, right, who people right. said, you haven't earned it. It is extraordinary to see. I mean, Christine, is that just maturity? Oh, I think it is. And think about it. You're a very young person. And the eyes of the world, or the sports world at least, are upon you. And our culture. I mean, everyone knew Kobe or knew of Kobe. And so I think there's that. But going back to Kobe is like the Title IX male. Men who've grown up with girls playing sports next to them or with daughters who now they're driving to their games and coaching. He evolved into that to the point where he's on Jimmy Kimmel uh, a year ago or so. And he's explaining that there'd be men that would come up to him and say, hey, you know, you got to have a boy. You got to have somebody to carry on your tradition, the legacy. And before Kobe could answer, Gigi would answer, I, I got this. I got That's this. Right. Don't, don't worry. And Kobe loved that. And both of them are cut short. Cut we short. don't get to see how they yeah. turn out. Yeah. And, you know, the only thing you can hope is that uh, Vanessa and the other kids can grow up with this image of their father as this positive father, as a father who would become a role model 
for other fathers with daughters. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the image that um, that I'll hold on to. Kevin Blackstone, sports columnist for The Washington Post and a professor at the University of Maryland, and Christine Brennan, sports columnist for USA Today. Thank you sincerely so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Cows. The Cows. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date. Still doing it. Today's date. Saturday, February 1, 2020. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, suggestions, observations you would like to share. The number 605 313 5164. Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Many things to share before uh, we get to the callers. Uh, number one, the cows counter racist yoga retreat, Toronto, May 21 to May 24. Get your passport. I did not state either in writing on my blog where there's information about the retreat or in all the times that I've talked about the retreat thus far, I did not state uh, the maximum number of participants. The maximum number of folks that we can have for the retreat is 14. Uh, Retreats are supposed to be kind of small, intimate, not, you know, 50 people, 40 people, anything like that. I personally don't think it should be anything above 20 unless you know it's really unique circumstances uh but even 20 i think is a lot for a retreat so no more than 14 uh and so we are kind of at the halfway uh of 14 again we'll be there may 21 through may 24 that is a thursday through sunday Technically, you'd be saying, hey, I will be out of the country, as they call it, for Memorial Day weekend uh, this coming spring. All meals included plant based meals. We'll be having a dry experience, no alcohol, sober weekend with plant based meals, yoga every day. Hopefully we can maybe see about going to the gun range constructive exchange of views uh, we'll have some cooking workshops counter racist workshops uh, really looking forward to hanging out and hopefully enjoying spring weather lovely time in the city of Toronto uh, sort of a couple's retreat number of couples some have already paid uh, an expressed interest uh, we are because of the couples it's already kind of leaning us to having balanced numbers of males and females uh, but in terms of people who've actually paid we are 
leaning a little bit female, just a little bit. But again, because we have couples, it's close to being balanced. So feel free. Uh, We're about halfway. Maximum number of folks is 14. If you have questions, feel free to email untiljustice at gmail.com. Again, there is information on my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Children under 14 years of age, half price, as long as we have eight paying adults. Looks like we will have eight paying adults. Looking forward to uh, hanging out in Toronto. Fun times. Next, uh, the all of the, I guess, frenzy recognition, recognition, people grieving uh, since the uh, stunning uh, passing of Kobe Bryant, uh, his daughter, 13 years old, Gianna, uh, the others, seven, uh, who also perished in the crash. Lots uh, to report via that. Uh, Certainly loss of life, non-white people, always tragic. Uh, If I were to, if I were to point individuals to, let's say if you said, hey, pick, you know, five games to, you know, understand or grasp uh, the legend of Kobe Bryant as just as a basketball player. And if I were were asked just in a context of being a basketball fan, I would have a very different set of games that I would recommend as opposed to if someone said, well, put this in a counter racist perspective. I would have a very different set of games to watch where you could also see his greatness as a basketball player, but you would also get an understanding of white supremacy, racism. Uh, If I were doing the latter that game that you heard, the audio clip that uh, began before they began talking in the news segment about the passing of Kobe Bryant and his legacy. That game was from December 19th, 2003. In fact, I could pick out, you know, specific games that I'd say, oh, yeah, this is a game you could watch context of white supremacy. You'll see Kobe's greatness and then. Oh, yeah, you can learn a lot about racism, white supremacy at the same time. In fact, you could take that entire 2003-2004 season, like from beginning to end, basically. And I mean, preseason all the way through. Uh, That's when the allegations came uh, that he, you know, had raped this white woman in Colorado. And then you got the court proceedings going all the way through. the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team, Shaquille O'Neal was still there on the team at the time for that season. Uh, they signed Carl Malone, who's in the hall of fame uh, for people put this back in basketball perspective. Now they said, Oh my goodness, LeBron James, he just passed Kobe Bryant to become the third all time leading scorer a day before the crash, which is true. Uh, one of only two people in front of LeBron James for points. Carl Malone was on the Lakers team that season, 2003, 2000, uh, 2003, 2004, uh, Gary Payton in the hall of fame was on that team. Entertaining just to watch, to see the people, you know, that would be there, but then to see everything that happened around that. And that team went to the finals. So, I mean, 
lots of media attention all the way through. Like if I was, if I was directing someone from a counter racist perspective, I would just say binge watch the 2003, 2004 season. You heard just a little sliver uh, of it from that little audio clip where Kobe Bryant comes in. uh, And even for that game, he was late for that game. He had been in Colorado for court proceedings, was late to the game. In fact, I can read the uh, article. Uh, They have many, many reports from this season. I said, this is all of this happened. That season was before the cow started. So I hadn't heard Mr. Fuller yet was not very informed about white supremacy race. And in fact, I was living in California that season. (laughs) I lived in California. I remember watching those games in California and we were plotting as the Lakers were moving towards the finals. Sacramento was in the playoffs and we lived, I lived about, I lived in the Bay Area. It's like an hour, maybe 90 minutes from Sacramento. It's easily uh, drivable to get to Sacramento. We were plotting. Sacramento went to game seven in the second round of the playoffs that year. If they had made the conference finals, my friends and I were plotting to go to Sacramento to see the Lakers in the conference finals. But Sacramento lost to Kevin Garnett in game seven, and they played Minnesota. Uh, in the conference finals, Minnesota was not driving distance from the Bay Area. But I lived in California during that season. So I remember the intensity of it every day and them talking about the court proceedings and people talking. I mean, it was in the papers uh, every day. It was in the L.A. Times uh, constantly and Bay Area press as well. Uh, but this is from CBS to give a bit more detail about this game. Uh, the judge in the Kobe Bryant case is waiting for more information before he rules on key issues and clever matter of fact, I'll even back up before I get to that specific night. Cause they, uh, he had to go to Denver repeatedly, right? The, the charges happened in Colorado, Colorado, Denver nuggets. They have a professional basketball team, so they have to go there and play twice a year, man, the intensity of when he goes there, I'll read from the report and just for the Like I said, the the basketball value. So when he goes to play there, this is Carmelo Anthony's rookie season, 19 years old. He just come from Syracuse winning a national championship. So all of that. And then now I can give you the exact details. So they say uh, Brian's world was upside down. This is from uh, the Denver Nuggets basketball blog site. DenverStiffs.com. A season later, Bryant's world was turned upside down and it was visible on the court too. As details, as detailed above during the off season of 2003, Bryant would be accused of sexual assault right here in Colorado and had to play much of the 2003, 2004 season while going back and forth from NBA games to Eagle County to appear in court. When Bryant first visited the Nuggets that season on January 7th, 2004, the Lakers shooting guard struggled to connect on just eight of his 23 field goal attempts as Nuggets fans drowned the Pepsi Center with booze and chants of guilty, guilty. And the Nuggets beat the Lakers handily by 22. That was the first season of the Nuggets Carmelo Anthony era and the first of 10 consecutive playoff appearances. Three would come against Bryant's Lakers later on. Bryant would get his revenge six weeks later when the Lakers came back to Denver in late February, again being drowned out with booze every time he touched the ball. Bryant scored 35 points, matching Anthony's 35 and dished out 10 assists while leading the Lakers back from a 13-point fourth-quarter deficit and a 112-111 Lakers victory. That game is online. 
you can watch it and hear exactly what he said. The crowd chanting and being uh, nasty. I was not able to find the previous game, January 7, when he vented, uh, visited Denver, Denver and they yelled guilty, guilty. The game that I played the segment from is from December. That game was not in December. That game was in Los Angeles uh, where he was late arriving. They had the court proceedings. I can read that now. Give the full context. The judge in the Kobe Bryant case is waiting for more information before he rules on key issues, including whether the medical history of the woman allegedly raped by the NBA star should be allowed as evidence. State District Judge Terry Rucklidge delayed action Friday as first meeting privately with attorneys for both sides, then sending witnesses home. The prosecutors and lawyers for the woman say her medical history should remain out of public view. They urged the judge to hold any arguments about the issue behind closed doors, and he agreed. The defense wants to use the woman's medical history as proof she had mental problems clouding her perception of what happened between her and Bryant in a Colorado hotel room last June. Bryant, 25, insisted they had consensual sex. The judge set a January 9 deadline for briefs on medical history question. The next hearing is scheduled for January 23rd. Prosecutors and Bryant's lawyers left the courthouse without comment. Bryant hit a 21-foot, 21-foot jumper at the buzzer Friday night, giving Los Angeles Lakers a 101 99 victory over the Denver Nuggets in LA. You heard that in the sound clip. I haven't hit a game winner in a while. He said, I had a good feeling about it. Bryant didn't start because he arrived late from the court hearing in Colorado. His plane landed 25 minutes before tip off and he showed up at Staples Center with about four minutes left in the first quarter. He jumped on a bicycle in the locker room before joining his teammates. That is on YouTube. And I remember watching this season many of these games and they would show him at the courthouse and then they would show him going to, you know, the game or what have you going to that game. They would see he came out late. He missed the whole first quarter and he comes out and the, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing study in uh, racism, white supremacy. I say unequivocally, if this had happened later, like all of this fast forward, Kobe Bryant doesn't start in 1996. His career starts, you know, 10, 20 years later, uh, and this happened after the Me Too moment. I think it would have been a totally different outcome. Uh, I think to the entire trajectory of Kobe Bryant's career changes. I don't know if he gets convicted, but I suspect it is substantially different uh, if this had happened Me Too era. Uh, I would... Also, Ed, just because I was watching some of this footage, I hadn't seen some of that in so long and remembering how he was uh, heckled every time they went to Denver and chanting guilty and all that and hearing some of that again. I have to say, there is no athlete that I've seen in the time that I've been watching sports, like while they were playing, not talking about OJ Simpson or something like that, Aaron Hernandez after, you know, whatever. But while they were actually playing still in uniform and what have you I have seen no athlete subjected to the amount of naked hate hostility and racism like LeBron James and the only reason that that stood out was because I was watching Kobe Bryant you could hear the crowd yelling you know guilty and he sucks and all the rest of it I remember that happened that whole season long especially in Denver but that whole season long I remember the night LeBron James went back to play Cleveland in 2010. The cows did exist at that time. Nothing 
that I've ever seen compared to that. Nothing. They had to have security. They had people that were thrown out of the game. Like it was amazing. Like easily. I think other people had talked about it. That is easily one of the other than like Jack Johnson and where a black person could have actually been killed that nothing compares. And I, it startled me even when I thought about it today, because I said, man, Kobe Bryant was accused of raping a white woman and they did heckle and yell and guilty. I mean, they did all that. I don't remember LeBron James being accused of anything. And it was way worse, like way, way worse. And it was bad for the entire game when he went back to play Cleveland the first time, 2010, after he left Miami, just for comparison. But anyway, the tackiness has been on display. I think much of the week, Thomas in New York mentioned a bit of it. There was a report I used it in the video promotion for this week's compensatory call in. There was a teacher in Southern California uh, at a public school. He uh, went on his rant about, you know, this Kobe's a rapist and he wasn't a good basketball player. And the children were sitting there stunned. I think one of them, he said he pulled out his phone to record, but he didn't know what to say. Uh, They looked kind of young, but I mean, I've seen lots of examples uh, of that, even in the news report that we heard uh, where, of course, we have to wouldn't be right. Same thing that I said last week. He was no angel. That's consistent when it's a black. He was Michael Bray. He was no angel. Michael Brown Jr. He he was no angel. Mm. Eric Garner. He was no saint. No way. Mm -mm. Out selling cigarettes. Kobe Brown. Yeah, he was. He was no angel. Make sure we keep that in mind every time we we talk about Kobe Bryant. You know, he did rape that girl in Colorado. Consistent. I just don't hear that same type of conversation dialogue with white people. I said, I don't even hear that same level of hostility talked about when it's white slave owners that they're talking about who've been dead for a long time. So there shouldn't be any sensitivities around it. Not so. Anywho. More to say on that, I'm sure, as, you know, evidence comes out. I guess I'll take this as another opportunity to point out I always hate it when a black person passes away. Michael Jackson, Muhammad Ali, now with Kobe Bryant, any black person, Rosa Parks, uh, when they pass away and you have a whole lot of white people, because you heard that uh, tackiness that uh, Bill Clinton was at the ceremony for Gwen Eiffel, same thing. Uh, when she was getting her recognition for her stamp, when you have a lot of white people who come out and pretend, oh, I just love this colored fella. Kobe Bryant was just the best colored fella in the world. I just loved, I mean, all of that. Michael Jackson, like I've seen this for a long time to be in a system of racism and have individuals classified as white pretend that they really connected to this Negro. He really made them a better person in a system of racism. Did he impact how you treat other black people? Did he make you think, rethink your dedication to racism, white supremacy? I reckon not because we still have a problem. Continuing. I hope folks, I don't know if people did the whole dry uh, January thing, but sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I've done my part to, you know, continue that and whoopee. If you did that for January, keep it going. Sobriety would be best. Do folks remember Gwen Ifa? We did read her book, The Breakthrough, uh, in the book club at the beginning of 2016, I believe, uh, talking about politics in the age of uh, Obama. Uh, I did not think that was an accurate book about 
white supremacy, racism, especially not helpful in the prediction of President Trump. But we did read it. It is in the archives. Uh, Bill Clinton. What can I say? Uh, What can I say? He gets invited. He gets invited to more parties than I do. Like Bill Clinton, the most popular suspected racist uh, ever. Uh, The section about the black cemeteries in St. Louis, I thought was uh, extraordinarily important, uh, consistent, Uh, even having the suspicion that this was done deliberately to desecrate a black burial site. They just had uh, the mass burial site that they talked about in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so-called Black Wall Street. Uh, They just also had the mass burial site in Florida uh, that they were talking about. This is constant constant where oh man we got a mcdonald's and turns out this was a nigger cemetery oh oh we just got to put a highway here this is just the best place to put it they talked about the same thing with new orleans there it wasn't a black cemetery it was a black business district we said oh no we got to put a highway here this is you know the best for the bayou and louisiana we'll all do better and you niggers will you know just drown anyway so no big deal. Uh, but Dana Ramey Berry, uh, she has a book on that. Some of that information is in medical apartheid. That was why I started with that snippet uh, from her book, Chapter 5, I believe it is, where she talks about how black corpses were desecrated, uh, where you get no reprieve uh, from racist man, racist woman, even in death. Very important segment, I thought. Uh, I'll pause there. Uh, oh, wait a minute. I can't pause. There. He said in the segment, did you hear him? They said... The black people were accused of reckless hilarity. I was negligent. I should have done the rewind button. I heard it and was stunned because I, I had not heard that word hilarity even used in that in that manner before, much less as an accusation like, oh, we need to do a lynching. We got some reckless hilarity. <laughs> like what? system of racism white supremacy the words used are extraordinary that could have been used at Tulsa Oklahoma we got reckless uh, reckless hilarity and black Wall Street get your rifle anyway uh, for this broadcast specifically words are very important Uh, if we could be direct specific Uh, about what it is that we would like to say that would be super appreciated. Uh, Racists regularly invoke metaphors, similes, comparisons uh, to practice deception. They will take two separate entities and insist. Oh yeah, these are identical. Exact same thing. Frequently that is not the case at all. Uh, If we could be direct, precise, about what it is we would like to say that would be super appreciated. I will prompt about that. Uh, Victims of white supremacy like myself, we've been exposed to this kind of misconduct for a long time uh, and we are still learning. So sometimes victims, myself, will take a metaphor, analogy, comparison of some sort and substitute that for logic. Frequently that just produces more confusion. Uh, Again, if we could just try to be as precise direct as possible with what it is we want to say I will prompt about the metaphors much obliged Uh, if you could take about five minutes uh, if you have commentary to share whatever it is feel free just make sure it's about five so that everybody gets an opportunity to share if you know you are in a noisy environment if you could use your mute button that would be grand Uh, if you can try to get to a somewhat quiet location 
uh, and then you can say whatever you need, questions, commentary, uh, and then you can use your mute button. If you have additional commentary, then you can just unmute and join us back on the line. But it just helps if we don't have to, you know, grapple with a lot of unnecessary uh, audio interference. Much obliged. Uh, I guess one other thing uh, I was going to make sure I got in uh, the whole uh, Wuhan coronavirus. I think Thomas in New York mentioned that the more that I've seen of this this week and I guess just reminding me, I think Thomas in New York, he talked about that uh, last week as well. Uh, We were just off of having uh, the Ebola virus. They said, you know, every dark person on the continent is contaminated and we got to put a band on the whole continent and don't let any of those dark niggers come over here. And then they just had the Zika virus. Same thing. Tons of dark people in Brazil, more dark people in uh, Brazil than anywhere else in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, they said, oh, my God, we got the Zika virus. We got to, you know, dump lice and anything else, lie and disinfectant and anything else we can get. Uh, and maybe we need to shut down the whole Olympics uh, instead of going over there. Anytime that they have these diseases that have those names, West Nile virus, uh, the Ebola virus, anything where it ends up being associated with a non-white location, non-white people. I'm very suspicious. Uh, I mean, not that, you know, people totally can be getting sick and all that happening, but all of this can be a part of racism, white supremacy, and they can take a genuine illness, a genuine situation and use that to practice racism, white supremacy, not to mention, you know, theories, what have you people have about how this started and all that. I'm just saying they can take an actual event and end up saying, oh yeah, they do this all the time. These non-white people over here are all contaminated. China, these are individuals classified as non-white system of racism, white supremacy. They're always constantly looking for ways to be hostile and disruptive. That could be an easy one. They've been talking about the uh, financial ramifications. Like, oh, we got to shut this down. Can't go over here. Quarantine this whole location. Yellow fever, yellow peril. They got a lot. I mean, that's great part of the history of racism, white supremacy, medical apartheid, regardless of how the event came to be uh, racist using it to support the system of racism, white supremacy. If they did not create it themselves, we are reading a terrible thing to waste. Harriet a Washington, who also wrote medical apartheid and white people. It does seem create a lot of these things directly, indirectly. Anywho number again, six zero five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate we'll get to the phone lines see if folks have thoughts they would like to oh yeah we're supposed to be here on uh monday somebody emailed me i totally forgot Kobe Bryant's death has been so traumatic and stunning that I think it did shift attention because normally we would all just be talking about the Super Bowl and, you know, who's going to win and what's going on in Florida. Being envious of retired firefighter, we can go hang out at his house and watch the game, see if we can go do some tailgating at the stadium. Uh, But it dislodged some of the attention for that. Uh, In our illustrious history here at the Cows, 11 years 
Uh, we have done a lot of Super Bowl programs broadcasting simultaneously. Uh, Dr. Layla Africa was on with us, I believe, in 2011. Dr. Welsing, uh, more than once, uh, was with us for the Super Bowl. Matter of speaking of New Orleans, she was on uh, live the year the Saints beat Peyton Manning and the Colts uh, in the Super Bowl. She was with us live during that one, and she came back. I think she was here with us again. Uh, when Richard Sherman and the Seahawks lost, lost to Tom Brady and the Patriots. She was on live with us during that game as well. But we have broadcasted a number of times. We were we were broadcasting when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. I wasn't out looting in the streets and acting a fool. We were on broadcasting and talking about white supremacy racism. So folks said, hey, Gus, are you doing the Super Bowl broadcast? And truthfully, I was thinking, no, I don't even want to be at home tomorrow because I think they'll be acting a fool uh, around these parts watching the game. I want to practice yoga and try to find if I can go someplace quiet. should be possible since the Seahawks aren't uh, playing. But I didn't think that is a part of our legacy. I was also thinking, no, because we do have a program on Monday. That's already scheduled. Martin Dandridge uh, will be here. He spent uh, a decade as a what they call correctional officer in the state of Georgia. Uh, and you talk about white supremacy racism doesn't get any more flagrant uh but he wrote a whole book we'll be talking about his book this coming uh monday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific but uh super bowl sunday broadcast i'm not opposed but i was thinking i don't even want to be in the residence i wanted to be reading my book in someplace quiet uh away from the madness of tomorrow but i'll have to see maybe we'll be on tomorrow we'll see anywho uh six zero five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh first few folks who dialed in if you have comments to share line should be open proceed uh please be mindful of the uh background noise. Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, it'll be, I'll be um, very happy if you do a Super Bowl, so that'd be great. Um, Allison Morris, um, the MSNBC, the Los Angeles Niggers. I meant Nakers. Um, niggers and Nakers don't sound anything alike. Um, the continuous, um, the continuous bringing up of the Kobe Bryant rape lie, which he beat in court and was acquitted. And I believe, Gus, the female not only bragged about sleeping with him, but she had other men's sperm and pubic hair um, in her possession when they did the rape kit, uh, which was one of the reasons why they acquitted him. Um, this is the mainstream media, um, and they repeated that. This um, incident before the family even knew, in some cases, or some of the people on the helicopter, they included that Rick Fox was there on the mainstream media before they had to recant that. Um, reporting the wrong amount of people, five, then it becomes nine. Um, giving out misinformation, which I thought journalists were not supposed to do. Um, and uh, I could say Mr. Fuller's TTT as on exactly what I saw, tackiness, you know, terroristic behavior on behalf of the media. Um, Comcast Universal, the parent company, the MSNBC, they should be boycotted um, as for their programming, their music, their movies, until they fire her. 
Um, Comcast, like most companies, cannot exist without black patronage um, due to the fact that um, they got money this year from the banks based off of their projections, and they projected to have a certain amount of black people watching and spending money on their advertising and things of that nature. So I think that um, instead of change.org, where there's all those petitions and they make you pay for it, simply boycott Comcast. And if you are getting your cable from Comcast, um, write them a letter saying that you have concerns about, you know, their company with the um, thing that's going on. Because, um, you know, that was wrong. Um, as for um, Kobe himself, um, the hardest working and most dedicated to winning and perfecting his game player I might have ever seen. No club, not going out, hanging out, no cookout, barbecue with the guys. I'll be at the gym 12, 14 hours a day. And I call and told the firefighter that if black people had that dedication to counter racism, um, to counter racist codification, the system would end instantly. Um, so um, rest in peace to Kobe. Um, the Nobel coronavirus. Uh, on October, in October, three months ago, 15 leaders in different health industries met to simulate the effects of in their response to a coronavirus outbreak starting in China, of all places. Um, John Hopkins was there, Henrietta Lacks, um, Johnson & Johnson, um, the head of the CDC. Well, amongst the attendees, you can see this on um, YouTube at Event 21. Event two hundred, um, event two hundred one conference, event two hundred one conference. Um, but during the simulation of the coronavirus outbreak in China, which just happens to happen three months later, um, coincidentally, they predicted that sixty five million people will die globally. Uh, we just got our first case in New York City today, um, and the person was here for eleven days, commuting and working without experiencing their first symptoms. So everyone they've encountered in, in those 11 days are potentially risked, and this, this could blow up. Um, this could be bad, my mistake does. This could be bad. Um, I did some research. As of tonight, China confirms, and this is just in China, they have over 14,000 cases of this infection. If you go, um, and that's in 14 to 16 days. Uh, in two and a half years during the 2014-2016 Ebola epidemic in Africa, the entire uh, epidemic had 28,646 cases. China already has 14,000 in 14 to 16 days, so they're half the amount of people. So this is much larger than Ebola. Um, and um, just tracing the disease back, the last time it came up in um, this region, it was called MERS. M-E-R-S, and this goes to what you were saying earlier, Gus, that means Middle Eastern um, Respiratory Syndrome. Middle Eastern meaning it comes from bats from Africa, from Egypt. They call them tomb bats, the bats that you find inside of the pyramids. So the, the, this, this disease is created from tomb bats and, um, you know, once again, coming from Africa. Um, I never miss a live Trump speech. I watched them on YouTube so I could see the people being interviewed before the speech and um, the people that are just standing around selling their products and things usually get interviewed. 
And um, I also like to see the interview of the people that they leave in the speech. And during the speech, I like to read the live chat. Um, while I listen, I, the live chat is really what it's all about. Um, but I do think um, great political speakers are great at the art of rhetoric. They cover the, log, the logos, the pathos, the ethos, and in my opinion, Trump's a master at this. So I like watching his speeches um, as well. Um, but either way, in the chat room, he was making some regular talking points, and then there was someone typed, they kept typing Jews and Biafrians. And I said, Biafrians, B-R, excuse me, B-I-A-F-R-A-N. Have you ever heard of a Biafrian? I have. I believe, I believe that's a <clears throat> area on the continent. Uh, they had a conflict with uh, the so-called country of Nigeria. I think they were trying to separate. We talked about some of that with Tinawa Achibe. He talked about some of that in Education of a British Protected Child. But, uh, yeah, Biafra, is that the Biafra you're talking about? That's what they're saying. So they found a very slick way to say niggers, okay, the, the Jews and the Biafrians, you know. And uh, just think, the country only existed from 1967 to 1970. I mean, that was just the region of Nigeria. And the codification of white people, to, they're all responding to this. And I'm like, yo, this is amazing. Like, how, how, you know, just to how studied they are in racism, you know, experts. Um, lastly, um, and I could come back later, blacks, I think, have been priced out of hockey. Um, hockey, um, isn't, it, it costs money to own a rink. They don't put money in our, um, places where we live. Skates cost money, sticks, those pads. Just when I was coaching baseball, I realized how much they priced black people out of baseball. Um, all the equipment I had to buy for my son, all the equipment that was being donated from various organizations that were needed, as opposed to um, basketball where you need no equipment. Now with football, they they bring all that stuff to the neighborhood or to the to the black area. They bring all of the equipment, fix the field up, everything because you know this is their this is the population of people that they want in that league. But hockey, um, if they did exude that same effort, I think that you would see much more black people in the NHL. Um, there'll still be racist fans, however, but I'm just saying that the fact that we're not there is not because um, we just um, don't want to do it. It's because that takes a lot of money and upkeep, and they don't put that in our um, areas. I mean, I want to thank you, guys. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Hey, it's Ken, it's Ken Steele, and um, uh, reporting from uh, Van Nuys, uh, California. Um, a few things. One, I don't think Kobe was uh, acquitted. Just for accuracy's sake, I'm not saying that um, I'm arguing that at all, and I would suggest you stay away. Any, any victim of racism, stay away from any uh, debate about the Kobe situation, the, the the Kobe case or anything, just stick to hey, the lady lied, it it wasn't true, and if you get more complicated than that, you get bogged down in details, and people can start refuting this and that, and start making long discussions, and you don't that that's not a uh, rhetorically um, 
an advantageous uh, uh, position to take to start arguing um, specific details or facts. I, I, it, it, uh, no, I don't think that that's a wise uh, 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 route to take. Also, um, uh, I I heard. Uh, uh, sorry, I was doing some research um, a few years ago. There was this uh, discussion that was happening um, based on images that were appearing on the internet. Um, these images uh, were so from a so-called Libyan slave trade, and you know, recently I've just uh, I've revisited this uh, discussion, and I wanted to look into some of those photographs that were associated with that time. I don't know if you are familiar with these photographs. They show uh, what appear to be Berber uh, type uh, dudes in um, security, in uh, armored vests, uh, holding pistols, pointing them at um, darker skinned African uh, individuals. And I, I suspected those images weren't of slavery. And then uh, there were those images where they would show large groups of dark-skinned Africans uh, either sitting or standing in line. And I was thinking, you know, are these images of, of a slave trade? And I, I did some digging and I did some research. And the images that you see of uh, the Berber dudes pointing uh, pistols and uh, various firearms at individuals were largely taken from uh, the uh, Libyan civil war uh, that preceded the uh, uh, assassination of Muammar Gaddafi. And uh, these were individuals on opposing sides um, of that conflict. Uh, uh, that's where a good portion of those photos come from. Uh, and then there are those photos of Africans standing in line. And many of those, I suspected, because I was in discussion with uh, an individual about this. I suspected those were images about uh, that were uh, more to do with, uh, uh, I guess, uh, human trafficking, not so much as slavery, but more like people trying to do um, migration type activity. Uh, and I did some research, and yeah, those were people that were destined for various rafts that were trying to get to Europe. So I, I'm. When we talk, when there's discussion about uh, slavery in Africa and this African slave trade, uh, Libyan African slave trade, I, I, you know, after all of these years, I, I haven't seen any, I haven't seen any actual evidence and such. I see images that were traded online that were mis, uh, that were mis, uh, quote, uh, uh, miscaptioned. So I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm still trying to see if there's, you know, any sort of uh, large-scale revived African slave trade that is reminiscent of uh, the chattel slavery that took place in what we, we know as uh, uh, the, the, slave tra the transatlantic slave trade of the colonial period. Um, and so that's something that, um, that really struck my uh, attention. And then um, regarding this, uh, the, the Kobe Bryant death, I, I'm here in Los Angeles and uh, – um, it was uh, very, uh, I was actually in Las Vegas at the time um, that it happened, but it was very shocking. Um, everybody's been talking about it. Uh, it is something that has been discussed. And I will say of all the bad things, I do think it is somewhat of a relief, somewhat of a relief that uh, this seems to be one instance where flippant 
racism um, uh, seems to be uh, uh, challenged in in a substantive way. I see people uh, making or by the public in a substantive way. It doesn't seem to be automatically um, automatically allowed. People seem to be challenging uh, a lot of the racism that is uh, uh, that is being expressed uh, following this uh, and relating to. Um, uh, the tragic death of uh, Kobe Bryant, his family, and the, the others on that uh, um, on the the helicopter, and um, also finally, um, I think uh, the phenomenon of uh, people expressing um, a conspira- what they call conspiracy theories surrounding uh, uh, deaths of uh, respected and famous black people. I think that's one way that we. Uh, that that seems to be it seems to be a, a very common thing that we do, and um, uh, and it seems I I don't know it seems to be a, a sign of respect that we have uh, as a, a group of people uh, that you know we will speculate if there is uh, larger forces uh, often nefarious forces at play and I I just think that that's a sign of respect at this point um, so I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily uh, take offense to uh, people who are um, expressing that. I think that's just a one way that um, that we as a people uh, grieve. And um, I'll go ahead and mute my line. Much obliged, Mr. Steele. Uh, number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks that we've missed totally, if you have commentary, proceed. Hello. Can I be, can I be heard? Oh, go ahead. I, I yield for the name. Thank you. Uh, greetings, everyone, and greetings, greetings Gus. Um, I'm a little bit under the weather, uh, so I hope I sound uh, clear enough for everybody. Um uh, so diseases and whatnot are going to continue to surface from all, I believe, areas of the globe or of this particular globe, except for Antarctica and maybe even there because there's a scant amount of people living there. So colloidal silver is something that people should invest in, um, along with uh, eating right, exercising. Colloidal silver is antimicrobial, bacterial, fungal, um, viral. And if you take it every day, after a while you have a certain, you know, amount of built-in immunity to things. It's not saying your body would be impenetrable, but it would be much harder for things to um, compromise your system. Um, and, and colloidal gold is something for people to, to look into it is going to cost some money to invest in, um, but gold is what's used for cellular repair. And um, years ago, I learned that Monsanto um, uses gold because apparently um, they've tried other stuff. Gold is the only thing that can penetrate the nucleus of a cell. Um, so they use gold to penetrate these uh, seed cells or, or cellular walls to manipulate um, their products. So 
there's a such product as colloidal gold, not for manipulation, but for healing the body and, you know, helping correct any mis, uh, misinformation in the cell. Um, so that was just a suggestion um, for people. I got a little bit sick visiting a, a cousin of mine. She doesn't sleep with the air, um, with the heat on at night. And I was already fighting something. And I was like, can you turn the heat up? She was like, no, I, I can't breathe at night. And da, 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 I got sicker. So she tried to offer me antihistamines. And I said, listen, I'm not about to take antihistamines. Histamines regulate um, uh, your thirst in the body. And then I realized how, again, uneducated we are when it comes to health how the body works, and I also want to encourage all victims to read books on not just the history of racism uh, when it comes to the body, but just how the body functions, and then you'll be able to glean from books about, you know, uh, biological racism to see why they did what they did, in fact, because like Mr. Fuller said, if they're studying grains of sand on the bottom of the ocean... They're obviously studying um, everything about us. Um, I encourage victims to also collect postage stamps. I collect postage stamps, especially the black history ones. Um, I wasn't necessarily looking for Gwen Eiffel's mission rest in peace, but now that I know, I'll get it anyway. But um, postage stamps are another form of currency, and I know people that were in greater confinement or seen or read things about greater confinement probably know this already, but that is something to do. And and the older lady um, talking about the club she was in, it was kind of refreshing to hear people talk about postage stamps because, you know, it's really passe for most people. And it's just two other things I wanted to say. Um, unfortunately, I have come to the conclusion, and I am still learning, that Kobe Bryant was a victim of racism. Of course, you know, the NBA, NFL, whoever else likes to inculcate um, the victims of racism early so they can be used to certain types of lifestyles, certain exposures to whatever incorrect behavior that would make them more inclined to side with uh, racist men and women's intent for further confusion. Um, I don't know what happened with that particular situation with that lady because I was still kind of young when that happened, and I wasn't really into basketball anymore. Um, but I do know, you know, I heard about the rape, and then he was basically, you know, he didn't have any charges. He was a victim. Of, he was a victim. Um, I also like today watched a video somebody had five years ago where he came out and spoke against Trayvon Martin. And okay, if that's true, we have to basically the conclusion of what I'm saying is we have to divest emotionally from that activity of life much more than we're willing to admit we love sports. They define us or part of our cultures, where we live and who we are in a lot of ways, but it's not doing anything to solve the problem. And if anything, we're edifying people way higher than they should be in the regard of replacing the system with justice. And Kobe Bryant 
I'm not saying that he probably didn't do some things to, you know, help people, but we we just don't need to keep going about who he was, what he did, his record, who he slept with. It's not fixing the problem. And then this whole thing with sports, you know, the hockey leagues, and we're trying to get more black people to come. It's, they want black people to come because, in my opinion, it's probably because sales ain't doing well. Or they just want to take our money for that particular sport, too, because we love baseball, we love soccer, we love football, basketball, and some of us love the Olympics, too. So they're going to continue to get money out of us however they can when it comes to sports. We we don't need to be paying attention to it as much as we are, if at all. And I say that humbly. I'm I'm a student. Um, and I'll meet my line. Have a good night. Much much obliged. The male caller uh, who spoke up or who yielded, uh, feel free. Yes, uh, how you doing? Um, you know, real real interesting since we're talking about sports. Uh, I was in a barbershop today, and um, oftentimes, you know, when we talk about racism, uh, you can feel um, alone. But uh, the conversation about uh, high school sports and racism uh, took center stage uh, metaphor. Well, was discussed in um, the barbershop as far as how uh, officials, um, referees, uh, treat uh, black high school student players um, compared to how they treat uh, white players. So that was the conversation um, in the barbershop today. Um, it was real interesting. Um, to continue on sports, um, the news clip, uh, it says that, uh, Kobe Bryant was becoming a, uh, feminist because of, uh, his, uh, love for, um, female sports, uh, basketball because his daughter, uh, was pursuing, um, playing, uh, basketball. Um, I mean, to say that and to see the activity on, uh, places like Twitter, where um, self-proclaimed white feminists were some of the people um, leading the discussion um, or reminding people that he is a rapist, even though um, if, um, I'm not sure if he was acquitted or if the charges was dropped, but uh, it was, uh, quote, unquote, uh, white feminists who uh, brought this conversation um I mean, within um, minutes of his death to remind people that um, he wasn't uh, all that good of a person. Um, um, speaking about um, Comcast, MSNBC, and a commentator who um, who I believe uh, it was a Freudian slip, <laughs> I believe, uh, when she said the word... Uh, uh, nigger, and, and she said it was a play on uh, Knicks and Lakers, Nakers. Um, also, um, Abigail Disney um, is reported of saying that um, Kobe Bryant, oh, Abigail Disney, who is uh, the relative of Walt Disney, um, is on record or is reported of saying that uh, Kobe Bryant is a rapist. Just get over it. Um, the idea of boycotting, whether it's MSNBC or Disney, um, 
you know, for the average um, victim that is um, into sports, um, that's into Marvel, that's into um, any form of entertainment. These companies have their, um, are so, um, they have, they, they have their, they're, they're tied into so many other companies. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it'll be a hard task to ask black people to boycott any of these uh, um, companies. Um, the um, burial site. It was real interesting that, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the burial site was bought for $2 in the system of white supremacy. Um, that sounds about right, <laughs> that the purchase will be for $2 um, of a cemetery. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, black um, uh, burial grounds have been um, mistreated um, throughout the history of this country. And um, as of right now, that's that's all I have. I had something else I wanted to say, but uh, I, it's, it escapes my. I, I can't remember. I'll if I remember, I'll um, bring it back up later on. Preserve our brain computers, for sure. Thanks everyone uh, who shared thus far. Let me give out the number again. It is six zero five three one three five one six. Four, the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate I do say strive for accuracy uh, Kobe Bryant was never convicted of raping anyone the charges were dropped so the whole proceedings didn't even get to a conclusion charges dropped that is that Uh, if you are with us and you have commentary to share if you're in a noisy environment again if you could use your mute button that is always appreciated Uh, folks that we have missed totally if you have a hand up if you have uh, comments, questions, suggestions to offer line should be open proceed while folks are getting their thoughts together uh, the anti-blackness pops out frequently I said the same thing I did say the same thing when it was Nipsey Hussle I said I thought there were uh, anytime it's a black person uh, who passes away I feel like the system of white supremacy does a lot of false boohooing about how much we care about black people none of these black people made us care enough to stop the system of racism white supremacy primarily talking about racist man, racist woman, and they get into all this nonsense. Uh, But I did even see within the Kobe Bryant as a rapist and all that from way back when, which they had been talking about a lot anyway. uh, I did also see people saying that we should not grieve or mourn the loss of Kobe Bryant because he was not married to a black female. And so he wasn't about black people and we should leave him alone. I thought that was anti-blackness as well. Could even be black misandry uh, specifically, but I did see that more than once over the past week. System of white supremacy. Why we should get about the business of solving this problem post haste immediately. Uh, Let's see. 
uh, other folks while we're oh I forgot too with the Super Bowl in uh, South Florida tomorrow retired firefighter he has sent me uh, an article about how the Super Bowl is right there where he lives Miami Gardens he's talked about it explosive black but where I won't say explosive but a large population of individuals classified as black they are not getting all the revenue they're having Super Bowl parties and memorials to Kobe Bryant in Miami and all this not being funneled to black people uh, in that area that'd be another reason for us to divest from all of the sports nonsense completely Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in if we have missed you totally if you have commentary to share proceed can I be heard? Just mentioned retired firefighter, probably out tailgating, cutting the fool, getting ready for the game tomorrow. Yes, sir. Let me put this hot dog down and uh, participate in the program. <laughs> That's just a joke now. Uh, uh, greetings, everyone. Greetings, Gus. Uh, yes, uh, also known as Murder Gardens. Uh, I just heard that about a few weeks ago. Uh, yes, uh, DCS program uh, met today. Uh, had uh, our etiquette uh, expert, uh, the uh, gorgeous Miss Shakur, to come in and uh, prepare uh, the young fellows for uh, in the future, you know, they uh, have business meetings or or uh, whether they are orchestrating a quote-unquote business meetings or, or, or attending something of sort uh, that they uh, know how to properly, properly uh, navigate uh, through the process, uh, such as uh, dining uh, or any other sort of uh, business uh, interactions of what to uh, say, what not to say, what to do, what not to, what to do, what not to do. Uh, it was open uh, for parents, but uh, one would be surprised on what a lot of non-white black parents would be doing uh, on a Saturday uh, after they drop their uh, children, who obviously do, don't have driver's license, uh, drop them off uh, at... Uh, the uh, facility, which is the high school that we have meetings at, uh, short of parents is what I'm saying. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, things uh, went pretty good as normal. Uh, uh, the uh, the etiquette uh, expert, uh, she is very good at uh, communicating uh, with these young black males uh, who pay very close attention to her uh, uh, hour to two hour long uh, uh, interactions with them. Uh, Kansas City Chiefs, uh, they are unique to be the first NFL franchise to have majority black players. That's, that's one of their uh, significance. They were the first uh, NFL franchise uh, that was uh, AFL of the AFL segment of the National Football League to uh, come about. And uh, the reason why I brought that up is because what's significant is that uh, the uh, owner slash founder of the AFL, Lamar Hunt, hired a black male by the name of Lloyd Wells, who 
significantly was the person who scouted most of these black males during the time. He was instrumental, which uh, uh, came about to hiring these black males. Uh, and that was the last time that they were in the Super Bowl, which they won. Uh, and as we know, they're the foundation of what we know of the National Football League today, which is, uh, I think, somewhere in the vicinity of 70 to 75% non-white black males today. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, basically my report uh, for this week. Uh, and uh, I don't have that much to say about uh, Mr. Bryant other than he was a victim of racism and white supremacy. And uh, I only know him as a good basketball player from what I've been told. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks that we have missed totally, number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Carrot hot dog, carrot hot dog. Hope you had a carrot hot dog out there tailgating. Others that we missed, proceed. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, Red, no longer in Vegas, now in Ohio. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, just a few quick things. An update on the, the white man, uh, weatherman, uh, news anchor in Columbus, Ohio, um, that I reported on uh, last week, he was he did end up pleading guilty to possession of child pornography. So uh, apparently, the whole his whole defense that he was self medicating with all the thousands, tens of thousands of images of young girls was not good enough for him to plead insane. Um, he could be facing up to twenty nine years, uh, but it's likely that just given the system of racism, white supremacy, I don't, you know, I don't think that he will actually get the full 29 years. He is 60, so 29 years could be um, essentially a life sentence. Uh, the other thing, some other um, news here, there was actually, they say there's two p possible cases of uh, coronavirus from um, Miami University uh, here in Ohio some students here who traveled to China. Then, um, but I've also seen like an influx of, of news basically saying that, that um, basically news saying that like the flu virus is worse than the coronavirus. So that's interesting as well. I'll make my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Red in Ohio. Did have that segment about Jeffrey Epstein and uh, Prince Andrew. Said he was uncooperative about his pal, uh, alleged child rapist. Uh, didn't want to give up any information, incriminating uh, details. So uh, 
system of racism, white supremacy generally does not do a whole lot in going after child rapists holding child pornography. I remember you talking about that case last week. So, wow, wonders never cease. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we missed you totally, see if we can get all the folks who dialed in with a hand up that we've not heard from. Comments, proceed. While folks are getting their thoughts together, uh, again, we should be here on Monday. Martin Dandridge will be discussing his book uh, on his time as a corrections officer in the state of Georgia. Lots of white supremacy racism in terms of how the inmates were uh, abused, mistreated. Hopefully we will not get any delectable Negro sexual abuse type things, but that is standard uh, system of racism, white supremacy, but that'll be Monday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I guess I'll try and figure out about the Super Bowl broadcast. Man, if you are going to be on the line, you should either be chatting or muting. I just asked if people had commentary to share. They didn't say anything. That is one of my pet peeves when I have people hang out and they don't talk and just let the background noise echo. Either use your mute button or speak up. Hey, yes, I do have comments and questions. I am not here to spectate. Anywho, but we should be here uh, on Monday. Reading is more important than watching television. We should have a white author, too. I'm trying to said I was just getting over being sick, getting my act together, ready to roll. But I'll update uh, Facebook and everything as soon as I have figured out logistically for tomorrow if we can do our Super Bowl uh, broadcast. Uh, let's see. All right, now, folks, who we have not heard from at all, if we missed you totally, if you have commentary, proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to guests, the hosts, the listeners, and callers. I had two um, local news stories I wanted to uh speak on really quick the first is uh here at the university of florida um victim of racism clarence thomas came to uh i guess do some teaching uh, lectures for uh uh uf law and apparently they had on a news report that a couple of uh mainly white women, they were um, saying that, you know, they brought up the the sexual assault allegations and said that, hey, you know, he was never held accountable. And they had these T-shirts and pins that go on clothing saying, uh, I believe Anita Hill and survivors believe survivor in these abstract words. And, uh, you know, they were saying, well, you know, you should be appalled if you send your 18 year old daughter you know to this to this school and they're supposed to be looking to uh, admire supreme court justices you know and just once again making um black males the epitome of all kinds of heinous crimes uh my next one is 
there was uh, some kind of a museum called the Matheson Museum, and I think racism is being practiced in this story because they were uh, doing a local interview report with this white female, and she was saying that uh, part of the museum exhibit is called the Johns Committee. It's named after a person called, I think, Charlie Johns. There used to be a state senator here in Florida. Uh, and she didn't refer to which year this was back at some time in history where so-called segregation and integration was going on. And she said that the committee was fighting to stop integration, so-called integration, in uh, the University of Florida. So she said that uh, the committee was trying to, and she used the term that I know Mr. Fuller used, subversive activities. The reporter used it, uh, the anchor used the term subversive activities. And I guess they meant by including non-white people, black people into the uh, school system. And she said the NAACP lawyers stopped it. So the committee went to focus on a more vulnerable they said it was a more vulnerable target, which was the LGBT. So I'm like, are they trying to say, in the sound like they're talking about white people, are they trying to say that this group is more vulnerable than black people in that, in that time period? So I'm like, this is obviously racism right now. So she just, this white woman just made this quick comment like, oh, well, uh, we just if you if you have never been affected by it, even if you didn't know this happened in our city, so it, it just sounded like it was no kind of uh, details to back it. But I've been trying to research and I haven't found anything, so I'm going to continue to look about a look on that. Uh, and my last one is on the I think it's called the coronavirus, and it, that word I keep thinking the coroner. So I don't know if they meant to word it that way. I don't know what the etymology is. Uh, I don't know if anyone thought about that as well. But when you look at the news reports and you see the uh, non-white people wearing masks, I think that's uh, a white supremacist strategy to, once again, build more stereotypes and stigmas on non-white people. And they seem to recycle it. And that's the, that's the word I keep thinking to recycle, but I don't know if it's in a, a certain type of pattern. They focus on one group of non-white people and they go to another group and they seem to keep having it go in a pattern for some reason. I don't know if anyone's noticed that, uh, but that's all I have to share right now. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Hello. Uh, much obliged caller in Florida. Yes, Irie, we can hear you. Oh, yeah, about the coronavirus. So um, corona is in, in, um, basically, um, if you look up the definition, it's uh, anything that has um, a halo-type effect around it. And this particular virus has some type of, like, for lack of better words, like an outer band halo type structure. Um, and that's what makes it a lot more different, um, I guess you could say physiologically, than um, than influenza 
um, and that's why they call it the coronavirus, but essentially this so-called coronavirus is related to actually Zika and bird flu and what somebody else mentioned, the MERS. It's all, you know, the, I guess you could call like subphylum um, from one larger phylum of a particular um, type of overall corona, coronavirus. And but yes, it is also to scare people that don't. I think it's you're right. It could scare people that don't realize people in China and Japan wear masks a lot, um, just off of as they say general purposes. Thanks. Context of white supremacy. Much obliged, uh, Irie, caller in Florida. Uh, poor Clarence Thomas. Uh, same thing if that if his trial had taken place not in the 90s but now probably would not be Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas he would just be another feverish raping black male and they protested well I don't know if he protested but he said they were not pleased yeah they're not pleased and how can you send your child to come here listen no good Clarence Thomas mm. Uh, words are important and I, I think also the point uh, about the images and just projecting those images that's what I mentioned at the beginning uh, if it's Ebola because they did the same thing there uh, West Nile uh, MERS I think he brought that uh, Thomas in New York brought that up uh, to just be able to put those images up of non-white people so and they got max and oh they're contaminated oh, like I said the yellow peril oh, we don't want them here man Get out of here. Stay over here. You know, get that wall up, man. Got to have more protections, more protections. We got a lot of dark people. They're coming from Mexico to rape us. And then they got all the infected, diseased Asian people coming over here with their diseases and such. Like, man, it's a tough world for white people. Uh, the number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, I guess this is day one of Black History Month, right? It's February. It's leap year, so we got an even extra celebration, right? But uh, I, I said this on workplace racism. If uh, any tackiness associated with this month is happening, please report. We've had that before where, you know, it'll be watermelon day on the plantation. They'll say this is in honor of uh, Black History Month and that sort of thing. Feel free to let us know. But also, Take advantage. There might be uh, workshops, seminars, speakers where they are addressing racism, white supremacy might be, you know, black burial sites like in St. Louis. They might have, you know, a seminar or something on that. Uh, See if you can find one and attend. I have gone to a few myself. I've recorded some are in the archives, but see if you can find one, especially if you have children, I would say Uh, it can be uh, a really uh, nourishing way to learn about state local history because sometimes it'll be focused on racism but it'll be local things or sometimes it'll be broader national things but try to find one and go especially an event where you can go and ask questions particularly if it's going to be a white speaker they might have black people depending on where you are coming out to to present things awesome same thing ask questions take your offspring and then you can continue the dialogue afterwards but try to take advantage I'm going to see if I can find at least one event uh, here in Seattle Uh, folks find anything let me know. I will try to go out and see if I can ask at least 
one question. I think that's one way we can take advantage and not be spectators uh, for Black History Month. If they're going to have events, have speakers go out, try to ask questions. You can recommend books too. have Mr. Fuller's book or have uh, Azure Savage's book. Take a book, some constructive literature that you think might aid people in their understanding of white supremacy, racism as you go and have your question at the ready. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, comments, questions, or I guess if there are folks that we missed totally, make sure you do not uh, wait till the end. Uh, we have about 30 minutes, maybe a little less left in the broadcast. Uh, don't wait till the last minute. If you think you have a question, comment you want to share. Uh, the folks, uh, if you already shared, if you have additional uh, questions, thoughts you want to get in, feel free. Uh, hopefully you all will be safe uh, if you're doing any Super Bowl related events uh, tomorrow. Maybe that might be reason enough to do a program. Uh, sobriety would be best. Make sure you don't, you know, get caught up going out to watch the game uh, and consume anything. And then you got to get back in a vehicle. I suspect they'll have sobriety checkpoints out tomorrow as well. Uh, other folks, thoughts, questions they want to offer. Yeah, Gus. Um, I remember what I, I was going to say um, about uh, the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I do. Ex- I do suspect. Um, again, this is just. Um, I, I don't have any proof um, that this may have been created in the lab. Um, you know, I just. You know, I just want us to never forget um, that the first weapons of mass destruction, um, smallpox in the blankets to the uh, Native Americans. So, um, you know, I, I suspect that um, this was a um, man-manipulated uh, virus. Um, again, I don't have any proof. Um, I'm just always suspicious uh, when I hear about viruses. And um, I hear reports that uh, Bill Gates Bill Gates is on the job. And... Um, I, I haven't read any articles, but this is just um, from hearsay. So if anybody has uh, any um, information on Bill Gates um, going into Africa to help combat this uh, coronavirus, um, you know, has anybody heard um, any reports of this, um, feel free to inform me. Because um, I don't really have too much information. And like the previous caller said, corona. You know, the the virus looks like a crown. So this is why they call it Corona. And um, also, um, the tackiness of white people as it relates to um, uh, Kobe Bryant. Example, um, on my job, um, discussing about uh, Kobe Bryant, white male, white coworker says... Um, you know, he's kind of overwhelmed with seeing Kobe Bryant all over his timeline. And Kobe Bryant, you know, wasn't a real decent guy. He he wasn't a good husband. He cheated on his husband. So um, I suspect <laughs> uh, his comment uh, came from a place um, of uh, some form of racism because, I mean, uh, a man was killed. Um, with seven other people, including his daughter, on his way to his daughter's basketball game. And the fact that he cheated on his wife was um, reasons for not, you know, being mournful um, about the past. I mean, this basketball player, 
Um, real tacky comment from a white coworker, um, but I'm pretty sure that um, other white people feel the same way. Um, that's all I got to say. And uh, everybody enjoy your night. Much obliged. Workplace racism. Context of white supremacy is every Friday. Neutralizing workplace racism, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I did say yesterday I would not talk about uh, the passing of Mr. Bryant uh, on my job with white people at all, maybe even uh, not with non-white people either, but definitely not with white people. Uh, and for some of the same things I said this evening, uh, the phony sympathy, grieving, oh, number 24, he meant so much, blah, blah, blah. None of that or, and I said, this, said that yesterday, I said either that or it will veer into, oh, man, you know, that Kobe Bryant, I'm just sick of it. He was terrible to his husband. She's not, I thought they stayed married. Did they get divorced? Like, his, you, you're more aggrieved about it than his wife is. And that was 20 years ago. <laughs> like, uh, his wife is not taking that stance. Like, why are you so aggrieved about it? Like, are you in this marriage somehow? Like, I wouldn't get into any of that. All of that, as she said, comes from a place of white supremacy racism. That's what I would expect from white people. That's when like, man, I got to get to the bathroom. It's good seeing you, Tom. We'll talk later. Or getting back to something work-related. Like, I'm not going to invest. 10 seconds in entertaining that sort of racist nonsense on the job. Workplace racism, Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, other folks, uh, comments, suggestions, questions? Yes, can I be heard again? <clears throat> yes, sir. Uh, it's just been reported not too long ago that uh, victim of racism, white supremacy, Antonio Brown, uh, was being that he was ordered to uh, take a mental health exam, whatever that means, prior, I mean, not prior to, but from his release from uh, or being arrested, uh, that uh, he, took, he took this test and was rendered to not have a mental problem. I guess that's what the, uh, uh, how to define that uh, result. Uh, just want to let everybody know that I didn't know. Uh, <clears throat> I, it's hard to figure that out on how to define that. Uh, I'm with Dr. Francis Wilson that states under the global system of racism, white supremacy, all victims of racism, white supremacy, non-white, have mental health issues. And in a lot of cases, our total physical uh, health is compromised under the global system of racism, white supremacy. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. I think Dr. Welsing used to say that uh, no individual classified as black, no non-white person, period, if you're subject to the system of white supremacy, qualifies for mental health. Maybe you don't qualify for health. Period. She used to say that on a regular basis on this program and I think many other platforms that she, you know, graced over her time on the uh, planet. Yes, sir. <clears throat> other folks, uh, questions, comments, Black History Month festivities or observations, uh, feel free. Number again, 605 313 
four, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Grant, I will make sure uh, to add We'll make sure to add in, uh, I think yesterday on Workplace Racism, we had a listener who wrote in, I forgot, we have parents. If we have parents, you cannot spectate. If you're hanging out in preparation for the Super Bowl, you got your hot dog, got your Cheetos and chicken sandwiches ready for the game tomorrow. Uh, put it down. If you have parents, uh, We did. I did make an error uh, from yesterday. <clears throat> Uh, let's see. Where did I put it at? I read half of it. The person called in and he asked for suggestions on whether or not he should change his name or adjusting his name uh, for getting jobs. And we talked about that. People had a lot of great uh, suggestions. The other portion of it, I forgot. Let me see. Okay. The other portion of it, this is the part of that I forgot. Next question I would like to ask is how to handle a suspected white supremacist in the education environment. My son has autism. However, I would say his case is more mild as he can communicate, but has issues with processing information and understanding social cues. A lot of his difficulties in academies stem from his inability to focus. I had an IEP conducted by the school as well as a psychological assessment done by a black psychologist. Wow. He is currently in special education where he is in the classroom and pulled out for individual work. I feel that my child is more capable of performing higher work, but his teacher, a white woman, seems to be flippant about his, about this and regularly gives him C's without challenging him. I know that a lot of times black children are incorrectly placed in special education, but in my case, my son does need the services. The school he attends is majority non-white with Latinos, so-called being the majority followed by blacks. Yet it seems like she just really doesn't care, although he is making progress. Imagine that a white woman who does not care about a black student. I informed her now he was reading a lot of the homework she sent home when at one point he could not read basic sight words. She was very dismissive and said how if he were in general ed, they move too fast. I feel like a failure as a parent because I never had academic difficulties. I did notice delays when he was younger and she sought help through ECI early childhood intervention, but he was not behind enough to receive services how can i ensure my son is adequately challenged when his teacher is a confirmed white supremacist without making him a target wow definitely if you have parents and or educators uh you cannot be a spectator this is one where he is requesting information we should try to help out i would say first and foremost uh if you have talked to this white woman the teacher and she's been flippant with you and saying, ah, oh, nah, 
you know, you, it, it's no way. He, it's too fast for him. It's too challenging. The work is too rigorous and he just won't be able to keep up when you're going to talk and you've been looking at the grades and you feel like she's just, you know, doing what they do. I think I've heard that one or maybe eight trillion times. You mean you're just giving this child a C or a D or some form of a passing grade and yeah, whatever, Ronaldo, just sit through. My name is Roger. Yeah, whatever, Ronaldo, just, you know, be quiet. You got to see, move him right along. Uh, if that sort of thing is happening, I seriously doubt there's a whole lot that you're going to be able to do to change this white woman's behavior. Uh, I would be looking to see if you could get another instructor. Uh, if there's another option in terms of having a different teacher for the child, if you're in a school that has predominantly white students or excuse me, predominantly non-white students. And I think you said mostly so-called Latinos and then black students. I don't know if that's going to be an environment where they have a wealth of resources to help non-white students typically if it's a lot of non-white students at a school it's going to be lower resources generally speaking but that just I just cannot perceive or conceive of a collection of words that could be used to make this white woman who's demonstrating behavior like a white supremacist to make her I'm going to do my best to educate your black child to be universal man universal woman he has you know whatever limitations with his autism but you said he's on the higher functioning end you know it i just don't think that that's going to happen i think sometimes you look at these situations and it's new school or at minimum you know different teacher that in of itself can entail a lot of difficulties in terms of what schools uh, you have access to in your uh, in your area sometimes they don't have other schools sometimes it's difficult to move a child it's february i mean we're halfway through the uh, academic year so that's challenging for a lot of reasons, but I mean, if this is typical old white woman, the majority of the teachers uh, in the USA, K through 12, even into the academies, um, I'm just not aware of a whole lot that can be done. I don't have children. Maybe there are parents here and or educators who have some strategies they would recommend, but this does not seem like a white woman who has your child's best interest at hand. I would be looking for a different classroom maybe even a different school uh, for my child Uh, do any of the parents and or educators that are with us uh, have any suggestions can I be heard retired firefighter parent yes sir Uh, I would say that uh, it's possible that that black psychiatrist I believe that's the position that you were referring to the black psychiatrist uh can assist uh, uh, to go to him again and get a report, get a report of uh, uh, possibly one uh, favorable to uh, what what your uh, uh, ambitions and observations of your your offspring is, and uh, so that can be submitted to the uh, the school where your child is at. Uh, also, uh, the first step would be is to remove your child from that particular teacher. Uh, normally, from my experiences, uh, when you make that request, it will be honored uh, at the school where your child is at. Uh, and last but not least, yes, uh, you should be uh, entertaining the idea of just uh, scouting out and going to another school in itself uh, if the problems 
uh, still persist to your dissatisfaction. Uh, that would be that would that would, that possibly wouldn't be the end of everything, but that would be at least a start. I think. Thank you. Hello. Ari, much obliged, retired firefighter. Yeah, I would um, make a report and um, of, of uh, the interaction between myself and the teacher, whatever my child is reporting to me about the teacher, and then, like the firefighter said, get the uh, psychologist to make a professional summation um, of how the removal would be better for the child's um, IEP um, targets being met by being placed out. And I take that to the principal and, and the people that um, see to that, the, the SPED educators. You know, they need to bounce stuff like that with parents. And if there's resistance, I would go to, um, i go higher even to um, the state board because um, I kind of had the same situation when my son was sexually harassed. The school gave me the runaround about talking with the teacher and taking my son out to class. And then when I got in touch with the state board, all of a sudden things happened um, and he was out of the class. Um, there still might be some residual effects. I don't know how long the child has been in this class with this um teacher, and if there are, that needs to be documented with the um, the mental health professional um, as well, because um, like everybody advised me, there may even be a, a lawsuit that needs to happen. Uh, yeah, but that's what I would do. Um, and then, yeah, it may be that he has to get out of the school. And that's, that's all I, I have. Much obliged, Ari. Much obliged, Ari. Yes, sir, we can hear you. Go ahead. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, uh, callers and uh, listeners. Uh, once again, Gus, thank you for the platform. I'd say in regards to this uh, parent, uh, sensitive parent, I am as well. Um, and I've been in a situation that's a little bit sensitive where if you, um, if you do anything that would be seen as seen as hostile, towards that teacher or kind of going contradictory against that teacher, she may lash out in a way that may be harmful towards your child. So you first have to kind of figure out what type of white person this is. And mainly most of them will do that anyway. I mean, that's just what it is, unfortunately, in the system of white supremacy. You'll, you'll have to be tactful about this and about going about the manner of removing them out of the class and stating the reasons why. And if possible to find out, if you make the request, will it be honored? Um, because if it's not, whoever you send it to within that school, school district or department is definitely gonna go back to that teacher and probably tell them white people do that all the time. So nothing you say to them, to that person that's in charge in that administrative role is going to be withheld to that teacher. It will go right back and they will tell. And that may cause a little bit of a strenuous situation for your child in that, in that, um, um, in that, in that scenario. Um, 
removing him from the class, if, if you can remove him from that class in general, find, figure out a way to find out without, um, without getting too, too deep into, as, uh, how can I explain this? Just not allowing so many people to know exactly what you're trying to do, trying to find out. Um, and be, you know, for, you know, you just have to be as dishonest as them in some aspects to protect your child. I've, I've dealt with this before. That's the reason why I'm speaking on it. Um, I have my child have an IEP, but it was more for behavioral instances due to outside of the household. Now, the other thing you could do also is get a child advocate, somebody that would be able to speak for you and the child um, and would be able to articulate and be another support while you're in the room, even having a meeting or a conference with them, because they're not going to take a laid back approach to you making that request. They will be defensive and they will be aggressive um, in regards to that. So you have to be prepared for that. And having a child advocate actually assist in that manner. And that would also give you a little bit more. They will also give you more information of things that you can do that the school will not tell you. And that's extremely important. Um, so I do suggest that. Um, and going shifting gears, uh, well, pardon shifting gears, um, going back a little bit to speak about uh, Kobe Bryant, there was also here in, in New York, in the New York Post, there was an author, uh, a, a supposed reporter, that made some really disparaging comments about Kobe Bryant as well. Uh, Felicia Sun, Sunmez, uh, last name S-O-N-M-E-V, and um, Immediately after hearing Kobe's passing, I think it was within 48 hours, she posted on her on her Twitter the rape case and all the charges brought up against him, um, everything that was pretty much uh, put into the case and uh, the article that was done by somebody the same year that he was retiring, you know, and that's and that's one of the things that. I don't think gets discussed, and Dr. Tommy J. Curry brings it up a lot in his work, which is there's no forgiveness for black men in life or in death. And um, this, is, this is just another prime example where immediately um, somebody posted something. And when she posted this, she got death threats. People were after her, coming after her. And the Washington Post suspended her, then brought her back, stating that she did not do anything unethical. So henceforth, they can't have her on leave. And um, surprising, not unsurprisingly, people were obviously supporting her. So she's got her job back. She's back in her position. And she just removed the post about Kobe Bryant that she originally posted that got her the death threats and everything. Um, as far as the virus, I, I do feel that there are some, I just feel like there are constant distractions that we're unaware of that are being done on levels that we may not have any idea. Um, you know, with the impeachment going on, all these other things going on here in New York City, we have issues with riots going, well, not riots, but um, protests in regards to fair hiking and gentrification. And I just feel like these things, as far as the, the virus, is, is, is another distraction and another way to keep in, inciting fear into the general public, especially non-white people. Um, that being said, I will mute my line. Thank you for the time and energy. 
Much obliged. Uh, definitely appreciate the suggestions uh, for the parent who wrote in. Uh, if any other folks have suggestions uh, for the parent who wrote in, son with mild autism, please share. Uh, just reminded of Dr. Welsing's uh, recommendation where she said repeatedly, uh, when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. I'm not saying that the listener or anyone else uh, is playing around with sex, but just bringing that up because there are so many things to consider. You know, what sort of resources will our child need? That's why I talk about that all the time. Like, that's just one thing to talk about before you hit the bedroom. Like, let's have extensive conversation about, you know, what our child's academic plan is going to look like. So we aren't in this position. You know, let's try and see if we can plan to avoid that. So we don't have to deal with any racist white women getting their paws on our child. That can be a big part of the dating game, seeing if we're compatible. What do you think? Are you in the homeschooling? Maybe we can find, you know, locations where they have, you know, black schools and independent black academies, things of that nature. Lots to think about. This is what is waiting for you, producing children, black children in a system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, Any other questions, suggestions, folks? Thomas in New York, yes, sir. <clears throat> yes, um, I don't have any um, experience with that. Um, however, um, I know that in the workforce, I've worked with in a, at a company that hired people who were, you know, quote unquote special, and they thrived in the workplace um, quite well. So, I mean, it's I think that um, you know it's, it's definitely you know going to get better, um, you know, as they go through the, the schooling and things. However, I, I do have an aunt, or a cousin rather, she's older, much, much older, but she's a cousin, who um, was the head of a school. Uh, I'm going to ask her some questions, but um, in, in North New Jersey, she was the principal for like 30 years at a school for people with mental challenges, autism, and uh, even um, recreational um, disabilities and things of that nature. Um, I did have some other things that I wanted to report. Um, Virginia, um, Virginians respond to the gun control proposals by purchasing almost 74,000 firearms in December. Um, and um, the cool man himself, um, who we still don't know if he was in the Klan outfit or in the Blackfeet, uh, he has um, pretty much going after the Second Amendment rights of the Virginians. So they responded just in December, seventy over, almost 74,000 guns. And I was like, wow. You know, um, another article that I saw, and this, um, I, I'm going to just quote a part of this. It's um, the new U.S. Air Force video game lets you drone bomb Iraqis and Afghans. And um talks about a video game on the website for the U.S. Air Force that um, has 16 simulations where you play the game and it's just like the real life bombing someone in a drone. And based off of your um, attribute to this game, um, they start sending you proposals and um, start recruiting you for this game. Um, and an article goes on to explain a, a, a quarter of the people who get hired by this program who get paid very lucratively but um, once you do it in real life, it's not, um, you know, video game people you're killing. It's real people. 
and you make it, you know, you don't have the, the choice. Someone's telling you hit the button. Um, so um, these people are have a quarter of the people every year quit the job. So they're recruiting very hard. And this is one of the new tools. And it goes on to talk about the mental, um, the, the people that, that they want, that they're attracting, how their mentality, they want them to be and things of that nature. Um, so in the article, it says, um, other different personalities revel in bloodshed. Prince Harry, for example, was a helicopter gunner in Afghanistan and described firing missiles as a joy. I'm one of those people that quote him. I'm one of those people who love playing PlayStation and Xbox. So my thumbs, I like to think I'm like probably quite useful. He said, if there's people trying to do bad stuff to other guys, then we'll take them out. Like it's a game. Um, so, um, Prince Hart Harry, um, was a person that's married to the Meghan Markle. Um, and I forgot he was in the war, um, killed quite a bunch of people. It seems like and enjoyed doing, um, but that's the type of mindset of the people that, um, they're going after that, that really enjoy this and look at it like it's a video game. And uh, I thought Imhan DC would be on the day. I wanted him to check out this article. So if he's in the archive, it says Congress now funding controversial geoengineering plan B to spray particles to school to the sky to cool the earth. And um, the guy just mentioned Bill Gates. Bill Gates is funding a huge part of this um, in this article. Um, it's called um, Solar Geoengineering, his program that he's and They want to give the effect in the stratosphere that there's been a volcanic eruption. So that, that volcanic ash. So they want to put sulfur oxide. It's very detailed, the article. Uh, in fact, it says, um, one is to eject sulfur dioxide uh, or a similar aerosol in the stratosphere to help shade the earth for more intense sunlight. It is patterned after a natural solution, volcanic eruptions, which have been found to cool the earth by emitting huge clouds of sulfur dioxide. The second approach would be, this is the plan B, to spray aerosol of salt particles, sea salt particles, to improve the ability of low-lying clouds over the ocean to act as shade. So um, the, this was the plan B, but it, it's a very detailed article. Congress now funding controversial geoengineering plan B to spray particles in the sky to cool the earth, and that's from the activist post, and it pretty much goes in there exactly what he always talks about as far as the chemtrails. And I'll be my mind thinking. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Make games out of practicing racism. Uh, Henry in Chicago, did you have a uh, commentary to share, sir? All right. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, I wanted to comment on the email uh, that you read about <clears throat> The, uh, the young child with mild autism. Um, working in a public school system here, um, I think the previous callers, Irie, and also the male caller who suggested an education advocate was actually a great idea. If that person knows anybody in the education sector with, with you know, much experience, uh, they need to contact them and give them, you know, all the information that they have on that child's case. Uh, if you would like your child to, you know, stay in the school, but have that child uh, under another teacher, 
because one of the hardest things that a public school will do uh, to fight is to, you know, give control of the parents to where they want their child to go in the particular school. So uh, public schools will fight that. So I just want that person to just be prepared uh, for a fight. And the way you prepare is documentation. Uh, make sure you have all your child's work. Make sure you can justify that your child is improving and then bring that, you know, step up, you know, to the, uh, you know, each administrative level to the principal all the way to the, you know, and to the board, the local school board, and even uh, I think Irie had suggested the state board as well, whatever state that they're in, because at least you'll have documentation and paper trail uh, for uh, for a case. Uh, but yeah, public schools will 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 uh, will fight this tooth and nail. So I just wanted that person to be prepared for it. But the child education advocate—that's uh, something that I would definitely. Uh, recommend and suggest uh, to do because uh, they're, they're the people that really know the rights of parents in these particular situations because uh, races, especially, you know, white female teachers, you know, they want control of uh, black minds so they can, you know, uh, practice racism and miseducate them. And I'm willing to bet, you know, we're reading, uh, a terrible thing to waste. I'm willing to bet that school has a large level of lead in their water system. So uh, that's all I have on me in my life. Much obliged, <clears throat> Henry in Chicago, all the parents, educators who uh, gave out suggestions uh, for a parent who was asking. Uh, much obliged uh, for the assistance. Uh, any other suggestions? Anything folks can get in? Thirty seconds. Yeah, uh, real quick. Um, this this is definitely what you what um, the caller Henry in Chicago just mentioned is definitely um, accurate. I went through the same process in getting my son out of special education and into regular classroom settings. Um, you definitely have to be ready to document and fight on a consistent basis. And this thing I, I forgot to mention is communicate with the child in regards to racism, white supremacy as much as possible, and the dynamics that have him explain to you some of the situations that go on that make him feel uncomfortable. That way you'll get a better analysis of the teacher and what his or her actions are that are negative towards your child. And it may anger you. You have to be very ready to when you see that teacher to, to, to manage that anger. But as a whole, it literally took me a year after my son was getting very good grades to get him out of that scenario and back into regular classroom and back functioning at a whatever they would call at a higher level um, educational-wise. So, yes, um, Henry in Chicago, that's a very good point. I, I forgot to even mention that. Um, that said, I'll, I'll mute my line. Much obliged again for everyone's contributions in terms of suggestions for the parent who wrote in. I hope they, I know they appreciate it. I would if I was a parent. 
Super Bowl broadcast. We'll let you know tomorrow if we're going to broadcast for the Super Bowl. Stay tuned. But we will be here either way, Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. <clears throat> Martin Dandridge wrote a book about his experience as a corrections officer in the state of Georgia. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We will discuss it this coming Monday. That <clears throat> much obliged for everyone's participation this Saturday evening. Hope it has been worthy of your time and energy. Again, I think we have bigger priorities than fall games. If you are going to participate tomorrow, be safe. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I hope you're not at festivities with individuals classified as white. Things can get dangerous and racist. Anywho, say it again. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Keep our brain computers working as well as possible so that we can solve the problem. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver, especially tomorrow. I think they'll have Sunday checkpoints. In addition to being sober and buckled up, if you are driving, you are not on the cell phone ever. Just doing the little things we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. a victim uh, i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned uh.